People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to Greenwashed with me, Jaspreet and Don Nicholson. We hope you've had a good week and a good weekend and are ready to face the, whatever crazy the week ahead brings. Hi, Don. G'day, Jaspreet, and g'day, listeners. Yeah, that's been an interesting um, sort of seven days. I mean, there didn't seem to be too much of a post-mortem about the All Blacks uh, uh, South Africa match. It just seemed that New Zealand moved on. It wasn't major depression um, last week. But, you know, this this week we've had the, over the weekend, we've, or Friday, the election result. Again, it sort of seems, everyone seems a bit nonplussed about it all. We have become a country of quite blasé thinkers, have we, or? Or is it just you and me that um, are, are the activist ones? <laughs> that did take long. The Grinch did take long at all done to come out. <laughs> yeah, where where is that blue washing? Where is that hammering that one would have expected national? I mean, they lost two more seats, didn't they? And well, I, yeah. So where is that hammering? Because after such a you know string of six years of such lackluster performance by Labour, Nationals should have romped home. But as this performance after the special vote counting shows, this is nothing to write home about, at least in my books. Well, if you look at the state of the um, of the country's finances, uh, the, the spending of the state, the spending of local government, um, you know, those of us that are at the coalface of earning real currency for the country, uh, you're right, Jasper. This has been an absolute disgraceful election for supposedly the centre and centre right. They actually haven't done that well. They should have had a. You talk about a blue wash. It should have been a white wash um, of uh, perhaps seventy five twenty five, and it's not. It's just with the with the three on the um, the likelihood of making the government. They didn't get much over fifty percent of the vote. And. I looked at ACT messages on the Facebook page over the weekend and they said, thank you, New Zealand. Today's final count shows ACT's best ever electoral results. We like to extend our gratitude, blah, 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 to everyone who's made real change a reality. Can ACT really claim a huge win here? 
has have they improved a whole lot? Has something changed that I've missed? Uh, well, look, you know, and, and people know my background, so I'm, I'm an act loyalist, have been since effectively they started. Sorry, and to, to me, uh, the last six weeks, two months of the campaign, David Seymour, the leader, who I respect mostly, to me should have shown some, um, some should have, uh, I may not have had all my data right when it came to the lockdowns and the and the vaccines and things like this. And to me, he would have held a better um, number of seats or list seats in Parliament today. To yes. me, I reckon he lost two to two. To, I reckon he lost two to three percent in that last six weeks. He wouldn't say sorry. He dug in for the fight against the freedom movements and and people that just wanted someone to say we didn't get it right. And he gave Winston Peters the lifeline and Winston grabbed it with open arms. And so now instead of having a uh, two-party government, we're going to have a three-party government. Thanks, David. So basically you're saying David didn't eat humble pie that he should have. That's right. That's well, and I'm no, look, he's a smart operator, so I don't want to say that I know better than him. But um, to me, uh, I think those street corner videos of him giving people that were just legitimately asking questions about um, vaccines and vaccine injuries and 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 just the whole regime. David, you know, just, just eat a bit of humble pie and just say, um, look, we need to look at this better. Maybe you didn't get the best advice. Uh, maybe there's new advice that I should have looked for or has come out and we just need to have a review. Winston grabbed all that with open arms and he cut his lunch. Yeah, I, I thought that was rather silly because as a politician, you always have an easy out, don't you, Don? You are not supposed to read every bit of policy yourself. You have advisors and you can easily yeah. pin this on them. Well, you don't put other people under the bus either. That's not fair unless, there's, unless there's someone clearly de uh, deceived you. And if, if there has mm. someone in his midst has deceived him, then he could have easily said, I didn't have the right advice. My advisors were um, put me crook. Uh, I don't think that's the case. It's just that plenty of us do see that the last three to four years haven't been mm, as straight up as they should have been. And if well, you want to double down on it, um, you're stupid. If you want to double down on the states, the statements you've made about, I know more than you, mate, get over it sort of attitude, which is what he did on the street corner. Um, I was a bit embarrassed as an ex supporter to see that. Now, on the other side of that, I, I I do know that if you're in politics, you have to be ready to um, sort of either move away or get out of that sort of predicament. But you don't do it by um, being filmed and <laughs> and getting her, you know, getting that through social media as it was. I think that caused. I think that caused massive damage, that that street corner video of David chastising that young guy who legitimately asked legitimate questions. Well, maybe David has thrown his weight behind the regulators, the medical regulators who have just extended the provisional consent of the COVID vaccine that was uh, otherwise would have expired last week. So maybe that's where David is putting his uh, weight behind and he didn't what? Uh, well, see any issues. Well, let's just see. They're forming a government right now. Let's just see whether that comes back on the agenda because uh, it actually should. This sort of extension happening while we're in no man's land of governance um, just strikes me as um, 
smart, uh, yeah, the, the health department smarties just being too smart. <laughs> oh, gosh, well, yeah, complete the anyway. job, why don't you? Oh, and the, the other side of all this is, <clears throat> you know, the Maori Party gaining another couple of seats. And, you know, they've said, their leader said a few weeks ago, um, if, if this new coalition decides to take on Maori uh, the way they think they're going to, there's going to be a revolution. So that was John Tamahiri. Now we've got um, uh, Debbie Packer saying the same sort of stuff. What the heck is this threat? There'll be revolution. We've had 30 years of revolution. And actually, I think there's a lot of New Zealanders had a gutsful of um, this pandering to uh, to the Maori uh, specifically. And and it, it's got to become quite a costly exercise. You sort of wonder, uh, when does it end? I mean, look at Australia. They had a vote called, uh, you know, over, it was the voice, and they lost. But it didn't mean they lost. Come the following Monday, the activists were out there stronger and louder than ever, demanding uh, Indigenous rights have more say. Well, as as regular people are saying, they're getting $42 billion a year from Australian taxpayers fed into uh, uh, sorting out Aboriginal communities. But no one can define what good it's doing. So wouldn't it be smarter to actually define what the $42 billion is doing and then saying, where are the gaps and where are we wasting all this money and starting again? Same here. I mean, this constant reparation I, I don't know when the gravy train stops. To me, it went off the cliff years ago, but not to uh, not to, to party Maori. No, you're right. I don't. I, I don't think it's anything about this at all. It's about ingratiating and fatting the top tier uh, tier of Maoridom. And I think um, I yep, feel you're, sorry. You're talking. I feel sorry. The average Maori on the yeah. street. In fact, yeah. the average Kiwi don't is not getting anything. Everyone. Is going backwards. And for listeners, if you're not sure what Don was talking about, he's uh, referring to an interview John Tamahari had with Mihirangi Forbes, I'd say about uh, early last month, where, he, where John Tamahari ventured into talking about a mm. revolution. But, mm. you know, what's the, how does that song go? The revolution won't be televised. And we <laughs> see this sort of thing happening now via various cultural capacity and diversity initiatives happening throughout the country. I was, I mean, have any of you guys tried popping in the word culture or diversity or cultural capacity into seek and seeing the list of jobs that uh, come up? It's, it's staggering to me where, which way we are heading. And this morning I was looking at the Wellington Regional Leadership Group's website and they've got a job post there. They they are talking about an EV capacity building job force. And I was looking at this, wlrc.org.nz, the EV capacity and capability building project. Now, who decides these, obviously? What does success look like? That's always my question. What does success look like? How much money will be spent? And when will we say, right, you know, we've either got there or we haven't got there? Where does it stop? But oh. there just seems to be no such answers. Any such questions are usually just met by, met with that, you know, stock standard response. 
you're a racist, shut up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it gets quite vicious. It gets quite vicious. I can I can just imagine if if um if I was um uh, saying this to um people on the streets of Invercargill, I'd be I'd have street corner fights probably. <laughs> it just doesn't make you're hundred percent right, Jaspreet. This won't stop until it's stopped. Yep. And it needs to be stopped. It's eating this country apart, uh, up and apart. And, um, you know, yeah, it's, easy, it's it's very easy for me to say, oh, look, I've got Maori mates, and, and I do have, but um, I don't talk about this with them because of, uh, you know, I probably would be deemed racist by them because they've been sort of encouraged to, to use that term. Um, and yet I've never, ever felt that I'm any better than them or they're better than me. Never, ever. Or they nope. deserve this. What does this generation deserve that um, six or eight generations ago may have lost out on? I don't get it. I mean, the ones I know are doing perfectly fine. Gail has some Maori heritage, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, my, my um, wife's married, got part Maori. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, can't and can't stand can't stand this stuff. It just it just eats her up. And a few Indian mates now. Hopefully, you and I have never discussed. We don't go into those sort of things. The things at about when we meet, say online or in person, are pretty generic stuff that could be applicable to anybody. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just feel like I've got a right to go back to the Isle of Skye and see what I can get out of those people over there. Those poor people that left. Uh, left holding the fort away back in Scotland in my four beers times. I'll go to Ireland or or go to France or I should go to America, to California and find my piece of gold or even Ballarat in Australia. Look, it just doesn't, I don't think like that at all. But um, but obviously there's organisations, there's local government thinking like that. Again, going back to the Wellington Regional Leadership Committee, wrlc.org.nz, which actually is, they say, a union of councils, EV and government in the Wellington region. So their project, the EV Capacity and Capability Project, mm -hmm. it says that it's a work placement uh, project. And they say, what outcomes are we looking for? Understanding EV interests and perspectives, understanding the experience of working in Tiao Maori, an established relationship with an EV partner, cultural development opportunities for mana whenua, growing a cultural needs base, and better informed approach to engagement practices. None of these are measurable. None of these have concrete outcomes, and yet very concrete ratepayer dollars, taxpayer dollars will be spent on this. Oh, and the leaders of it will be so convincing that their job is so vital and so important. And any time I hear the words capacity and capability, I know it's part of the whole regime that the likes of um, uh, our guest last week, uh, Julian um, Romanello, talks about. These are words that are all part of the lexicon of the Marxist agenda. The, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird way of talking about it, but but this is uh, this is how they are doing it. So the mm. Wellington Regional Leadership Committee, a collaborative partnership yeah. to oh, positively another, another one of those words. Collaborative to positively shape future growth in Wellington, Varadapad, oh. Horofendua. So they are having these sort of outreach programs, obviously funded by people who are still in many cases 
want better infrastructure, need some other things done. But this is where they prioritize. Oh, yeah, well, of course. Um, sorry, and I'm going to jump a bit more uh, further ahead uh, into this um, report from uh, the Public Service Association. And the headline is PSA welcomes gender and ethnic pay gap progress. And I, of course, I've got, um, and we've talked about this before, pay gaps. I mean, to me, everyone should have their pay based on merit. Um, and if you're in the public sector, um, man versus woman versus an ethnic person, it should never be about that. It should be, oh, to me, ethnicity is all one. Um, uh, we we shouldn't have any pay disparity. It's about it's about how qualified and how you know what standard you're at in your job. But it goes on to say this, and the classic is it talks about how the gaps are reducing, which is great. Shouldn't be a gap. But and uh, it goes on to talk about. Um, the union also welcomed the latest Kiwi Count survey results, which show trust in the public service remaining high. Eight out of 10 trust public service based on their pub personal experience. Public uh, service workers are highly rated for their honesty, for doing their best to help people and for the respect they show. And here's the kicker. New Zealand know they are getting great service and value for money from what the public service workers do for them. Uh Mm, I think there's a bit of um, dispute on that last point. <laughs> so Kiwi Count, they've been going on for a while, the survey since 2012. They polled 2,000 people, again, demographics. But my point is, why are we doing this? Because this fulfills one of the UN SDGs, your gender pay mm. gaps and all. Because even though the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are just 17, even those I think are too many, but each of those 17 have dozens of sub-goals within them. And within gender equality, this is one of those. Within the equity and, you know, doing the right by every single community and the rush to tick off the United Nations scorecard, this is all part of this virtue signaling, or should we yeah. call this this money laundering, money wasting, of stuff like this is uh, actually just pretty much taking those off. Yeah, uh, there's 169, I think, from memory, sub uh, pillars mm -hmm. to the 17 goals. And yeah, you could just about, you, you can write um, a lifetime of prescriptions under them. You know, the people that are in this, they don't want to do um, the production of, of a good and a service that is actually going to, do, um, yeah, the genesis of their, the revenue that they spend, they don't have any respect for it. They don't have any respect for it. And that's the problem for me. If the PSA just did their job, you know, better infrastructure for everyone. If there's a good road, everyone benefits. If there's responsible spending, a balanced, uh, you know, annual report and some sort of surpluses on occasion, everyone benefits from it. But they seem to think that different ethnicities have different wants and needs from the Public Service Commission. And uh, there they go. Well, just think of this, Jaspreet. If you're a consultant, if you're a big accountancy firm, big legal firm, or a big consultancy firm, you would want to milk this stuff till the end of time. And that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't believe the number of so-called professionals who dive deep into this stuff and make a career out of it. It's I've faced it all my life. I've witnessed this as a director. The people that are milking this side of the equation, there's 
a plethora of them. They just come out of the woodwork and all of a sudden they appear that they they need a grant here and some some co-funding over there and all of a sudden they're writing papers and then they're running seminars and conferences and it's $3,000 to attend. I mean, I know it keeps local economies going like Wellington or Auckland or Christchurch or like that, but conference that's coming to Christchurch next year, that will be stunningly good for the um, local economy for a bit. For a bit. But, but what does it do in terms of public good? Nothing. Yeah, long term, not much. But anyway, that's, that's what experts experts have come to. That's oh, yeah, the non-job creation. It's really good. It's really good. I in mean, fact, I, I, dare, I dare say that we should take that a different way, though, Jasper. It, sh- it shows that those of us that are at the coalface of production, some, of producing something, have got so good at it that we don't need so many people to do our side of the ledger, but we fund the non-jobs on the other side. We should probably take that um, as a badge of honour that we're so good at our job. I know. And I'm beginning to think we've reached a stage where, you know, from ETS and carbon and climate being the a big money spinner, the biggest job scheme ever, I think the cultural capacity, the diversity, equity, inclusion has uh, has overtaken it somewhere, it, it, seeing the amount of people all jumping on this bandwagon. I mean, talking of experts, I'm just going to throw one last this thing here before Don and I move on to the feedback. One recent paper I read in the last week came, uh, was published on in the frontiers of psychology, this paper. And I subscribe to this because psychology has now started tending to go into climate and how, you know, climate hysteria is pushing people into depression. And also I I sort of keep tabs on it. This article came up last week, paper, research paper. New study sheds light on the impact of, drum roll please, manicures on women's psychological well-being. New research suggests that nail care, whether done at a salon or at home, can boost positive emotions and relaxation for women. The depth of personal sharing during manicure appointments also influence these psychological effects. I was blown away. Like, I'm, I'm used to nonsense at this stage. I am used to nonsense. But when you start funding psychology studies on the effect of manicures on women's mental well-being, God uh, I don't. Oh, I have don't have words for the stupidity. I I can see Don, you don't either. Well, I just don't know. I thought it must be in some fairy tale that you're um, some fable that you've been reading. But you do you do put yourself at risk by all the stuff you read. And that, <laughs> My that's your, will be that that's your problem. Yeah, your relaxation. You just search all this stuff out, and it's stuff that I couldn't even get past the first line of of reading. So. <laughs> Listeners, Jasper, it's a, a was at this stuff. Give her credit, uh, but oh, that's sad. That that is so sad. But I, thankfully, I have children. I have a farm. I have kids who are right now trying to pen a Jersey cow. That's an escapee this morning back into where she should be, and they they keep me sane. You know, I see the real world just outside my window as Dawn and I broadcast, and it gives me a sense of what's tangible and what's this airy fairy nonsense. Yeah, so we do need to, you talk about penning up a Jersey cow, we do need to pen up a lot of the sheep in this country and tell them to <laughs> uh, to sort of um, uh, get it together and realise that things 
can be so much better if they'll just stop all this um this waste of kiwi mm. enterprise that's my acronym waste of kiwi enterprises is my woke um you know waste yeah. w-o-k-e waste of kiwi enterprise i just i'm sick of the wasters sick of them yeah completely mm. agree. anyway but on to some feedback and <laughs> yeah. for anyone listening today a few runs that Don have already done, and I've already set your Monday morning, uh, already set the tone for it. Please text us on 2057 or email us at, and I'll get this right, Don, inbox at the rate reality check dot oh, radio. <laughs> did I make the cardinal sin the other day? Oh, <laughs> you did, Don. But no, I, uh, it's it's inbox at the rate reality check dot radio. And here's a few texts that have come through. And as always, may I request you that when you do send us a text, if there could be, you know, a name there, we'd love to read it out. This is from Julie in Hawke's Bay. Don and Jaspreet, thank you for speaking with Julianne today. I've been following the Agenda Girls for many years, long before the COVID scam, and I really enjoyed her particular manner of articulating what we are facing. What a bold and encouraging voice, which was so complimented by both of yours. Oh. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. And yeah, Julie and Romanello. Uh, I was glad we managed to make some time with her. A perspective on what's happening in the US. And strangely enough, it just seems to mirror what's happening in New Zealand. Funny how that happens. Funny how that happens. Yeah, she was very clear in her thoughts. And it's interesting from where she started a few years ago on this stuff, how um, how it's now all consuming for her. Yeah. A liberal arts professor. A, mm, and she's such a very, um, well, you can see she's a caring person. She just has got, um, her heart is now um, trying to open the door to people's understanding of this this stuff, this command control stuff that's happening to the world. Mm. She knows it doesn't need to be. And um, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd encourage people to go back and listen to that on replay if they didn't, if they're wondering what we're talking about. Yeah, there's a couple of other texts in the same way. And what a great show on Don and Josh Preet sharing widely. This is during mm. Julianne's talk. Another one from Marlene. Thank you for introducing us to Julianne Romanello. I haven't come across her, but so glad she's doing similar work to Sandy Adams in the UK and Corey Lynn in the US. The world's awareness grows. Mm. Yep. And there was one there that uh, I'm not quite sure what. Yeah, it's probably got reference to some comment that I had made, some derogatory comment, no doubt. Wake up, guys. This all this co-governance, transgender garbage is to divide us. Get our minds off that the, the elite are pushing this. Get all to say no to it all. Again, that's that's anonymous. Mm. Um, and it is, but it is so true. I have always said that for any authority, any regulator, any government, the ultimate nightmare would be a united people. And mm. that's why. Under the guise of diversity, equity, inclusion, we push exclusion. Mm. Under the guise of kindness, we push mm. unkindness. You know, language matters, as Julianne also told us in an interview. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she talked about her lexicon has now got 200 uh, of these words that matter. Um, there's 200 words in her lexicon for um, to watch for if you're uh, involving yourself at a local or government um, or consultancy level of discussion watch out for these words now perhaps we should ask julian if she could publish her 200 words 
I mean, we, we've had a few, Jill and I have discussed a few. Julian, give us some mm. phrases. If you see the word, the phrase live, work, play, you mm. realize you're in a 15-minute ghetto somewhere. That's where you're supposed to be. You have cultural capacity, cultural capability, inclusive, collaborative, and you have endangered species. And all of those things, when they come in, yeah. And impact investing. Oh, impact investing. We have Akina and Don and I have spoken about Akina, our social impact investment vehicle in New Zealand and its uh, founders heading off to the World Economic Forum. Akina.org.nz are leading impact consultancy. And consultants are another thing to watch for. I think people often get so caught up into trying to find something in their uh council plans, the government, their political party, their MP, and so on. And we don't realize that, say, between the big four, the big accounting firms, the big auditing firms, you know, Deloitte and uh, the others, and uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, plus the big consultants, the global consultants, WSP, or Econ. McKinsey. Mm-hmm. Becker, McKinsey. Becker. All of these big engineering firms, big consulting firms, it is everywhere. You just have to go and look on their websites and uh, you find what you're looking for, but you often won't find in your own local government or your central government manual, like the WSP website. You just have to look up the 20-minute city in Aotearoa and there they have it and how they are pioneering it. And these are consultants in every council across this country, every big council oh. at least. Oh, and, and on top of all that, um, you know, I'm aware of, uh, I'm aware what your local council's dealing with uh, around sea level rise and and the discussion that's going on in many councils around New Zealand is just so almost, well, it's almost fallacious. Some of it's- Almost? Uh, they, they, why, why would you even qualify to that almost? Ni- I'm being nice because the close-in stuff, if you are talking about modelling from now till 2030, I can accept that. I can accept mm-hmm. that, that a model might be use, useful. But when you're talking modelling out to 2300, give me a freaking <laughs> break. You know, these people um, are only worried about paycheck to paycheck and they've got the temerity to talk about modelling to 2300 for sea level rise and they've got all the tipping points wrong so far. Uh, Tipping points, you know, tipping points for sea level rise, tipping points for temperature, tipping points for this, tipping points for that. And they're using modelling parameters that are so extreme they are um, out of this, out of the world, out of the realm of common sense. Um, and yet our local government in government and central government are using it. If, if Christopher Luxon and this new parliament doesn't fix this immediately, it should almost be number one thing to fix is get these parameters back to reality, which is using an RCP of, say, 2.6 at best. Yeah. And you get some common sense and you stop all these consultants coming around you. Sorry, Jasper. No, no. You'd stop all this nonsense consultancy and modeling that's going on. You would. And uh, we've had a guest in the past, and I hope we can get him back again, Sean Rush, who has done a great article on this. uh, It was earlier this May, May or June this year, when he published this article called Screwing the Scrum. And Sean goes into great detail of uh, 
how this nonsense has been pushed within New Zealand, even though many of these things that we are working on, you know, these RCPs that Don just referred, it's a scenario, scenario of the world is going to be at four degrees rising or is it going to be at three degrees increase in temperature or so on. We have known this for a while because our Lord and Masters, the IPCC, declared that this particular scenario called RCP 8.5, please don't you know dwell on the words RCP too much, just call it scenario 8.5, which assumes that the world is going to have 15 billion people very soon. It's going to be going full gung-ho on coals and you know fossil fuels and everything. IPCC itself has said it's improbable, unlikely to unfold. But uh, we don't seem to take that on board and we are going completely gangbusters trying to put study after study out there trying to mess up with this. Now, Sean's uh, article was called Screwing the Scum. It was on interest.co.nz. And he's very clear about what they are doing. We've also now got the Ministry of Environment saying that we need to look at this new tool that the Victoria University of Wellington has created for sea rise, mapping the New Zealand sea rise how howsoever much and then it's down said till 2300 or god knows how many years the sea rise project and the paper that they have come out with which the media has not highlighted is that they submitted a manuscript of their findings to the american geophysical union earth's future in july 22 it has still not passed the peer review and not that i put too much value in peer review but it seems that governments sometimes conveniently, when it suits them on carbon and methane emissions and others, they will choose not to look at a particular study because it's not peer-reviewed. Yet another one with outlandish as presumptions, assumptions and projections by our domestic so-called scientists and researchers is being used to screw the scrum, as Sean Rush says in his article. His co-author there is Catherine Moody. Sean was, uh, I think, Don, he was on the act list, wasn't he, this time? Way down on the list. Yes, he was quite well down, like from in the 50s and didn't get a look in, really. Yeah, and I'm actually grateful he, that he that yeah, he remains an and, independent voice now. Yes, yeah, he's very researched. He does his homework and he's got some other people I know. Um, Dr. William Willem DeLonghi, ex Waikato University, is another good guy on all this stuff. Um, but, you know, they've got a lot long road to hoe here because the New Zealand indoctrination machine has got so many people fearing the future. Mm. Turning the clock back is going to be quite hard. I mean, I, I read a line yesterday, sorry to deflect from your argument a minute. I was reading the Spectator Australia evening news last night and Rowan, it may have been Rowan Dean, the editor, I'm not sure what was his words. He talked about how we're basically being marinated in Marxism. And I thought, what a great <laughs> line, marinated in Marxism. Uh, and so yeah. there we are. I mean, that's the, that's, that's the key premise, isn't it? This is um, the slippery slope to, to communism that we're, we're facing here. People don't seem to realise it. I didn't realise it a few years ago either. So maybe I've had a road to Damascus um, moment. Yeah. moment. But um, yeah, I see it 
quite clearly now. And, and you know, on the other side of it, it seems like we're always negative and we'd be accused of being the most negative people on the planet. I've had all that chucked at me, you know, that everything you say, Don's negative. Well, I'm sorry. I've actually come from the hard side of life where you oh, actually had to survive. Um, I and thought make, you and I are living. positive. I think oh. you and I are positive, Don. We we have a more, uh, I'd say, optimistic outlook towards the Earth's future, and that we are not all going to self annihilate ourselves. Yeah, yeah no. We have, other... yeah. we have a balance. view. We have a balance view. Um, treat um, those around us with respect, uh, including things around us with respect, including the the um, land, the sea, and the scenery, and we should be just fine. I know. Totally. There's one last uh, comment here. This came through from Simon, and I like this mm. one. Blame those pesky Australian termites for methane. Yeah. How many people, uh, listeners, did you know that uh, termites were ruminants? Uh, I. Uh, so many people don't realize that. How are we going to ever tax those pesky termites? Well, and the and the rice paddies. How are we going to? They're ruminants too, are they? They they breathe and the um and the swamps. You know that they let off methane. Yeah. Oh, they're all ruminant animals. No, they're not. Um, but as it keeps saying, Jaspreet, and we've got to keep saying this till the cows come home. Methane is methane, regardless its source. Don't pick on just one uh, element of New Zealand's methane uh, production because and, you can. And it's a lie. Add, it's a lie. To Simon's comment about Australian termites, how about New Zealand uh, gas leaks? I was speaking mm. to Professor Jock Allison, and Jock told me, he says, Josh Preet, uh, one particular leak, the Hikurangi Swamp on the east uh, coast of North Ireland. No, not Hikurangi Swamp. It's the Hikurangi Fault. Fault, off the, sorry. Off, yeah, off undersea. undersea of the fault. undersea, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Thanks, Don. Yeah, one one particular leak alone accounts for close to half, close to half uh, the emissions that New Zealand livestock produce. So how do you go about taxing a fault in the earth? Uh, but see, that's natural. What we're doing is not natural. We're farming animals. Um, that's that's the problem. And we've we've farmed them only since 1850, of course, in New Zealand. And of course, um, only seriously have they um, caused significant warming um, in recent in yeah in recent years. But yeah. look, I know we harp on about it. But this lie has got to stop. I mean, the Methane Science Accord has started up and we really wish them all the success. But the traction they're getting is not nearly enough to turn the tide. Again, Lux, the, the, the new Prime Minister, Christopher Luxon, and, and I wish him all the best, he's got some big jobs to do. And it's turning this the lies of that and many other things back. And, and getting some common sense back into this country so we can all thrive and get on and um, have a happy country. I know. I know. But at this point, I think we'd like to bring in our first guest. And we have Margaret Byfield with us today. We Dawn and I recorded this chat with her as she was traveling last week. Again, uh, yet another uh, crusader on the road like Julian mm. Romanello. Is Margaret Byfield. She's the executive director of uh, American Stewards of Liberty, uh, a person with rural roots raised on a cattle farm in central Nevada, which her parents purchased when she was young. And she saw a lot of strife that her parents went through at that point on property rights mm -hmm. and what they could do or they could not do and how 
I would think she, her parents were virtually hounded by the government. Uh, well, that's what it sounded like to me. And the tenacity of her mother and father was incredible. I think um, it's a pretty sad story in, in some ways how they they won compensation and then lost it and and the courts again later under appeal by the state. So it's a sad story, but it's a really um, salutary warning for why you need to uphold the sanctity of property rights. And everything that's happening in this country right now, our country is about you know, diminishing the sanctity of the property right, uh, which is again, part of your United Nations agenda stuff. Um, yep, Jasper. the will of the individual but, private property rights, it's, it's all under attack. And uh, so I yeah. think- so, so just last thing, we found Margaret's um, name when we watched the No Farmers, No Food um, video, which we've managed to get quite a few names out of uh, that we hope to have as guests. And in fact, next week we'll have Jaap Hannekamp, who was also on that. He's a chemist from the Netherlands and a philosopher and a theologian. And he comes with the um, byline, but is this true? And, you know, I just think that's what we all need to have in our thinking. But when we when we have this any new sort of concept put in front of us, but is this true? And it doesn't matter where I look; it's a question that we all need to ask all the time now, because there is elements of doubt in a lot of the stuff. Um, there should be elements of doubt in what you listen to, and most of the stuff. Oh, you should Absolutely. be you should have a quizzical mind, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. So sit back and listen, grab yourself a cup of tea or your beverage of choice. And uh, as we chat to Margaret Byfield, it's been our privilege to do that. Thank you so much for joining us on Greenwash this morning. 2057 is our number. We'll see you on the other side. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back, listeners, to Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Uh, and I hope you've had a good fortnight or since you last heard from us. But, um, you know, we're, we're going to be on your airwaves for a long time because you can pick up this on your on your internet at any time you like and downloads. So um, today we have, continuing with a theme that we've had often on our show, um, someone to talk about property rights and takings and the lack of compensation and all the things that we've talked about for eons on the show. Um, and so I'd like to introduce Margaret Byfield, who's the executive director of the American Stewards of Liberty. Now, why did I come across Margaret? Well, I was watching a Epoch Times documentary that's just recently been released called No Farmers, No Food. And I saw this lady eloquently talking about her family's, her, her mum and dad's property in Nevada and the the problems they had and the, the battle they had for 27 years um, pushing back uh, against the state. Uh, so it was the Hague versus the, the United States um, and it involved uh, their cow and calf operation in Nevada. So... Welcome to RCR Greenwashed, Margaret. We're really happy to have you on because property rights, on my belief, are at the nub of everything we do uh, and, and face uh, private property rights. Now, why do I say that? Well, when I was chairman of Federated Farmers of New Zealand, my mantra was, it was our reason for being was, uh, to maintain authority over property for our members. 
And, you know, I thought we did that okay. But 15 years on and the cold, hard light of day, I realized I failed. And uh, we're all failing uh, unless we keep talking about the stuff we're going to talk about today. So at the outset of this, uh, I'd really love you to give us some background on yourself and your parents' uh, uh, fights and then uh, how the American Stewards of Liberty found it. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. It's it's nice to talk to somebody in a different country about property rights. Um, you know, that it's a topic that's dear to us. Um, in America, that's really the core principle that we were founded on. If you want to talk about what makes our nation distinct, you know, people talk about, well, it was founded by we the people. We didn't appoint a king. You know, it's supposed to be run by a representative government. And we have a brilliant constitution and bill of rights that really has served the country very well. So we have, you know, the Second Amendment, which is to bear arms, and we have the Fifth Amendment, which is to protect property rights. We have free speech. We have all of these great things. But what our founders understood is the only way that the people could um, retain those rights and protect those rights and control the government was if the people owned the land. So America was founded on that concept that um, that the people would own the land, and that's why as different purchases were made, like the Louisiana Purchase was made from the French, which doubled the size of the country it, um, in Jefferson, President Jefferson's time. You know, they they um, disposed of all of that land to the citizens. And people could go out and stake 120 acres up to 640 acres, under depending on which state they were settling in. And that became their land. And that created the middle class in America. But that was the concept. Uh, property rights were so important to the founding of America, and they were they were certainly protected. What happened, though, is when the Western states were settled, so you have 13 Western states that go, you know, California all the way over to Colorado um, up in that area, but pretty much the, the, the one-third of the nation uh, to the West Coast. When that part of the country was, was settled, um, our... Um, politics changed. And we had the robber barons at the time that created, you know, developed oil, developed steel, created the railroads, and they became very powerful, very, very wealthy. And they just really decided that um, they did not want uh, the, they wanted to control the resources. If they controlled the resources, they would retain their political power. So through some political ma maneuvering, they actually changed that concept in America. And, um, and the, most of the West it became federalized. So most of the Western states in America are federally owned. 50% of the Western states are federally owned. So our we, we ran a ranch. We purchased a ranch in Nevada. It was 1,100 square miles, which is actually an average size ranch in Nevada because it takes so many acres to feed a cow. And um, But a good portion of that, so we had 7,000 private deeded acres, and we had everything else was federal grazing allotments, which under our system of laws meant we owned the forage and we owned the right to graze. We didn't own the land, but we did own that right to graze. And we also owned the water. Well, um, we bought that ranch about the time that the conservation movement, the radical environmentalists were really getting a foothold in America. And so they really came after our family. Um, and, and really tried to make us a test case of, of pushing ranchers off the federal lands. And that's kind of how we came the eye of the storm at the time. It resulted in us filing a case in the, in the our court system. 
And we ended up spending 27 years in court fighting that battle. We won every round, even to the point that the claims court awarded us $14.4 million for the taking of our property. But uh, once we got to the D.C. Circuit, they actually dismissed the case on technical grounds, so standing and ripeness. So we never got to the merits of did we own the property, what property did we own, which was the key issue that my parents were trying to resolve for the Western landowners. So it was really out of that battle. And there's there's some harrowing stories of what they did. If you really want to understand government tyranny, we have a whole pile of stories of how they pushed us to get us off the land. But but probably the first thing to understand about that whole case is that the federal land management agencies filed claim over all of our water rights. So uh, in the West, we we didn't own the land, but we did own the water. And mm-hmm. water is what controls the land. Yep. So they they filed a claim over all of our water rights, and then they used the regulatory pressures to push us off the land. And so that then they would be in line to acquire that that water. So that's really what our case was about. But um, so that's and that's also what got me into the property rights movement. Uh, just growing up and seeing that when the government owns land. And they can, when they own that kind of land, they can absolutely control your future and they control your liberty. And that's, I think, the key thing to understand about property rights is we either own property or we are property. And our opponents know this, which is why they don't want us to own property because then they can control us. That is such a powerful line. You either own property or you are property. And uh, I think, you know, you've given us a brief overview, Margaret, but if I point to a couple of instances specifically that happened to bring forth to our listeners the tyranny that you're talking about, and I don't use that word lightly, the U.S. Forest Service during 105-day grazing seasons served you with 70 visits and 40 certified violations. I mean, how many mistakes can a person make in that? And then they told you that uh, you are not maintaining the fencing of a particular mountain there. And that mountain being that steep and that uh, rugged took three days, one day to get there, one day to have a look at the fences and a day to come back. And the person who inspected came back and told you that in 25 miles of fence, one staple was missing. This is what your family dealt with. God, talk about, you know, (laughs) literally into the eye of the fire. That's quite uh, a grounding, and I have. Do you, looking back at that now today, what what do you think has changed, or what has not changed? Because we are talking about this battle going back to the seventies, eighties, and through the nineties. Uh, what has changed in America since then? Well, I think when that happened to us, we were one of the few people that was happening to. Now it is they're even more powerful. The administrative agencies have even more control. Congress has less control over them so that they are getting away with this and doing this to people, uh, quite a few more people than they than just us. So I think that's one thing. Um, the administrative state in America has gotten stronger, not weaker. Mm-hmm. And so... That's and, and particularly under this administration, the Biden administration is really the first, I think, that has just come out and pretty much just decided I, I don't need to um, comply with the laws because the agenda is what we want to put in place. Then it doesn't matter. The laws don't mean anything to him. And so I think that's what's really become very obvious to the people is when we went through ours, we we recognized we knew that we had a lawless 
federal government. The regulatory agencies did not follow the law. To do what they did to us, they did not follow the law. Now, I think most people in America see that, that our federal agencies do not follow the law. And if they, if your government doesn't follow the law, that's, that's a very, very terrible position for a country to be in. Yeah, and and I look at um, what you've just mentioned, or listen to what you've just mentioned, and put it into a New Zealand parlance, um, Jasper. And the last six years, especially, we have been to hell, and hopefully getting back from hell with regard to the dis- disregard for um, for everything, really. A bit like Joe Biden seems to be doing. Our former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern did seems to have similarity with uh, what Canada is going through, similarity to what's going on in France, similarity to what's going on in Australia. It all seemed to hit the road in the last few years. And I often say to people, so you hated Trump. You hated him. So this is New Zealand as I'm talking about, Margaret. What did he do wrong? What did he do wrong? And they can't tell you what he did wrong. No. I mean, you may not like him either. I don't, that's not the point. The The issue is um, people seem to get on a wavelength that is very hard to get them off, they, that they ride the yeah. wave and they just can't get off it, uh, even when it's rotten to the core. And of course, um, your parents went to hell and, and look, let's hope they got some solace in the end. Um, but I... I can't even reconcile the damage that would do to you working that through your mind for 27 years. Um, it just just beggars belief how anyone should have to tolerate that. That's yeah. a life sentence. Well, That's a life sentence. It is. And and it, you know, before we filed the case, we went through 13 years of harassment, which is where, you know, the 70 certified letters that one grazing season. That that 105-day grazing season was the very first year we were on the ranch. So they started from day one to put that pressure on us to get us off. And um, you know, to your point, the toll it took was it, you know, we were all out working and and gathering cattle. Mom was the one who was home that had to answer the door every day to the Forest Service, handing her another certified letter saying, here's what you're doing wrong, knowing we weren't doing anything wrong and knowing it was it was outright harassment. And, you know, the stress really got to her. She ended up um, passing away at age 54 from a massive stroke. Wow. And it was all stress-related. So she died very young. And, um, and unfortunately, she didn't get to see, you know, she did see us get through summary judgment, which was very good. But it does. It has a very it has a physical toll on people being persecuted by their government and and being kind of a lone voice in that with other people not really understanding what you're going through. Well, and so so continuing, sorry, Jasper, it's continuing down this track for just a moment and we don't need to dwell on it too long, but we're seeing this anxiousness, this tension going inside our farm gates in New Zealand. We're seeing it in a big way in the Netherlands and in Ireland and any other country that you can sort of almost think about that thought uh, that farmers had the free right to produce, um, uh, they're now having uh, so much tension put upon them that they they have, well, some of them are committing suicide. And but there's no one in the regulatory side of life seems to think that they've got blood on their hands. They just don't seem to think that they're causing grief for no good reason. Uh 
how some of the stuff that they're putting upon us, they can't even define the merits of doing it, why that why they would want to do it. So, you know, when you were on that um, movie, No Farmers, No Food, that documentary, um, it that was part of the elements, the element of it uh, was around this anxiousness that's being created inside the farm gate and, and for the property right and the free enjoyment. So the upshot is in your country, what? What is the upshot? Is 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 there any case law now that's saying, uh, you know, that you, these regulatory takings um, are unfair? Yeah, they've just got to be hindered. Well, um, you know, we I think right now what is saving our nation is our state leaders. We have some very good governors that have stood up and challenged the Biden administration. Um, and so that has been very good. And the second is our Supreme Court. We have a very conservative Supreme Court that is really uh, interpreting the, our constitution from a, an originalist perspective, which is good. And so they have already started really pushing back on a lot of things and curbing um, curbing the administrative state's powers. And importantly, when it comes to property rights, there's a case that they decided called Sackett versus U.S., which uh, is the water rights case. And this is where, you know, we get into... Um, the Environmental Protection Agency basically manufactured a definition of what was uh, what were the, the the waters that they could control. The statute, the Clean Water Act, allows them to uh, regulate navigable waters, and of course, they basically wrote a regulation that defined that to mean almost any mud puddle, you know, would qualify. I mean, they just wrote it so it would cover everything, so they would have that broad regulatory power. So that was in the Obama administration. Uh, the states fought that and won that case and pushed those regulations back. Trump came in, rewrote those and made them sensible. And then, of course, Biden came in and he pushed them back out to, you know, something uh, more in the long lines of Obama. So that that process is still being fought. But in the meantime, this great family, and it was just a couple in Idaho that wanted to build a cabin about a quarter of a mile off of a lake. And they had their lot and houses were stacked around the cabin. They weren't like the only house there. And the EPA wouldn't let them let them build because they were impacting the waters of the U.S. And so they went through a number of rounds of cases. But finally, their case got to the Supreme Court and it was magnificent. It was one of the best cases, property rights cases we've had in probably 20, 30 years. But the Supreme Court absolutely pushed back the EPA. They had, they had overregulated. They had overextended. What is so important about that is now that is precedent. So once it gets to Supreme Court precedent, then that gives all of us with, um, from the property rights perspective, a stronger footing, not even just on water, case, water rights cases, but other cases that, that apply. So I think that, I mean, the, the one I'm actually, I'm actually pretty optimistic about our our chances, and that may sound crazy because of what we're facing, but um, there's a couple of really good things. Number one, one of the things that our founders said over and over again, if you read through their materials, uh, our founding fathers, is that, that America would survive um, if we had an educated educated citizenry. And we have certainly failed on that front. We have an uneducated citizenry. But um, I still have a lot of faith in our people. And when we can get good information into them and factual information into them, they 
you know, people have a good sense of right and wrong. And, um, and I think we can still appeal to that. And that in and of itself changes who people vote for when they get educated on these issues. So like the film, No Farmers, No Food. I mean, that is phenomenal, the way that exposed what's happening internationally. And so I, you know, there's a lot of reasons I'm pretty optimistic, but, but we are absolutely facing the greatest attack we've ever had on property rights in America today. Absolutely. Don, what would you think, uh, you know, Margaret is referring to EPA, that's your Environmental Protection Agency. What would you mm -hmm. think is the closest uh, one to that in New Zealand, in our perspective, oh, which we've got so many. I Ministry for the Environment, no doubt, is, is, because is that DOC one. Because DOC also would be, you know, yes. we yes. see the Department of Conservation here, we have the Ministry for Environment and all of those all working. And uh, Margaret, you know, one thing that I think, and I, I came from India here nearly 15 years ago. Uh, what stands out to me is that for a country of 5 million, that's as compared to even a, you know, a block in Delhi, that's really small. We are regulated here to within an inch of our lives, an inch of our lives. There was this uh, morning here, I was speaking to somebody and I was actually chatting online to someone who makes organic teas and she just sells them from her place. She lost her job with the mandates or something. And she was talking about she needs to make 10 different plans, then audits, biannual audits, food plan, water safety plan. All this person is doing is drying mm -hmm. herbs, popping them into little bags. And that's the amount of regulation we have. Mm -hmm. And it is little wonder that, I mean, sometimes I think as compared to the US, at least you guys have a constitution. We don't have that. We... Yeah. And that is because the way I look at your constitution, I think it's more than for the people. It's a check on the regulator, isn't it? That's how Absolutely. I would view it. Yes, our constitution is all about that. That's exactly what it's about is limiting government. You know, the, the idea of America's founding, you can kind of summarize it in one thing with one word, which is self-rule. Very independent that we have the belief that we are capable of governing ourselves and we are capable of governing our country. And, 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 you know, if you think about it, we've borne that out to be the best system of government because when America was founded, our most sophisticated form of transportation was horse and buggy. Within 200 years, we had a man on the moon, you know, and that's, and that's because, um, and it wasn't just America, but it was the concept of letting the human ingenuity explode, not being constrained by all these regulations, but having that ability to be independent, to pursue um, your vocation and not be restricted by all of these government rules and regulations. And that was the beginning of America. That's how we were founded in that. And we didn't have this these volumes and volumes of regulations that we have today. And that's when human flourishing really took off and it spread internationally. Mm. You know, it was everybody benefited from that. And it was seen, and I think rightly so, as the model of how you live um, so that people can be independent and free, have liberty, but liberty um, in a way that's also very respectful of other people. And so it's, you know, it's not a free for all that, well, there's no laws. It's just, there is, it's, it's self-governance. It's, it's a respect for, for other people as well. So, I mean, I think our country has borne that out, that that is a system that really works, uh, the type of government that really works. And, you know, our opponents know that, 
And, mm-hmm. and that's what this is all about. Internationally, that's what this is about. This is about removing the ability of citizens to take care of themselves. So when you think about America, what was so important about every American having that opportunity to have a piece of land? Well, that meant they could grow their own food. They could build their own shelter. They could protect their shelter. They could protect their families. And they could also create a product and sell it to the public and generate an income and become prosperous. That's why having a piece of land allows you to do that. Well, when they take that away, when they take those property rights away, they take away our liberty. And so, you know, that's the reason why we're seeing on an international scale the the need to consolidate all the control into one big voluminous voluminous government, whether it be the UN or the independent nations, um, and and the wealthy elite coming together and consolidating all the private side. So you get rid of the small farmer, like no farmers, no food shows, and you consolidate, you know, meat production into two or three corporations. Everything is becoming consolidated because it takes away the ability of the people to be independent. And if we're not independent, then what are we? We're serfs. Mm. Yep. Yep. That, look, all this stuff uh, resonates with with us, uh, Margaret. Everything you're talking about. It's interesting to me, though, how the uh, our universities, our institutions, uh, everything has been sort of infiltrated so easily uh, over many decades, but but quite easily uh, to the point where where the planners and the consultants and um, the people that feed off of that um, are sort of all pervasive and dominant in our society. I mean, these are people that only produce documents and rules, but we pay, but but we're paying them. And in New Zealand, I've often said in New Zealand, the, uh, and it's perhaps same anywhere in the world, the genesis of everything is the harvest from the environment, whether it's the land, the sea or the scenery, and it's paying the bills for everybody. So, the regulatory, my view is the regulatory side, the, the planners and the consultants and the people that uh, are, are educators uh, and everyone around that are um, all feeding off the environment at the same time they're telling me to produce less. Yeah. And it's all, it's all going to be fun and fine and dandy. Uh, I just don't see how they can't see. I don't see how they can't see the contradiction in that. Um, well, they do. I mean, and that's what we have to understand about our opponents. They absolutely know what they're doing. You know, there's not um, the people who don't know what what is going on are kind of, you know, I, I don't mean to sound derogatory, but they're really pawns in this. You know, they're they're the ones who are not educated. They're buying into the social agenda. It's a cause to them. They believe in it. And they are really being duped. But the people at the top that are um, pushing this agenda, they absolutely know what they're doing. And when you really study them, and because you, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, who's going to produce the food? I mean, that's one of the questions out of No Farmers, No Food. Who's going to produce the food? Well, that's not a concern for them because these same people also believe in population control. So if there's fewer people to feed, that's how they plan to solve the problem, not that we need more food. Um, so, and I know it sounds kind of crazy and demented, and I actually hate saying these things outside because it is crazy and demented, Mm -hmm. but, but when you read their material, you know, you have to be, you have to be honest about it in understanding what is their motivation and that's their motivation. And so, and when you understand what they're after, then you know how to fight them. 
it helps you figure out how to fight them. So uh, that's why they're not concerned about food production. Mm. Um, yeah. And so what we're going through and, and as we look at these problems and, and we look at it from that moral standpoint, you know, how are we going to feed people? Because that's important to us because we care about life. Um, that that's our concern, but that that's just not theirs. So, so Margaret, before we carry on with some other stuff like your 30 by 30, I would like to know how you would approach this subject, because even an hour ago, I was speaking to a local farmer who was in the presence of a group of other farmers yesterday who were willing to sell out all farmers to what's called limit setting. So nutrient limit setting on your farm. So uh, you know, the, the nitrates that may leach or the phosphates that may go across your land and, and, and run off in terms of sediment and things like that. So they'll, they've got these groups of farmers saying, yes, we can on behalf of everybody. Now, my view is those people that are duped into doing that should have the threat of legal action put against them because they have no right to be saying, yes, we can on behalf of all farmers. And of course, the regulator gets a free pass because he says, oh, but we've got 10 farmers over here who say this is all okay. How would you fight back on that? Because that's a fundamental in this country that I've observed time and time again, farmers willing to sign the documents and say, yes, we can, and all other farmers should too. Well, you know, a lot of these things come down to character. And um, we're having the same issue in our nation where our government under the Biden administration is handing money out hand over fist to farmers and ranchers to get them into these conservation programs, which then creates a federal nexus to their land. Uh-huh. And that's what the government's after is that control of the land. But, um, you know, we're seeing the same thing where people aren't standing up and looking at it, realizing this is actually going to create a problem for me down the road or for future generations. And so in essence, they are selling out, you know, to um, taking the money instead of, of standing and defending property rights. And and so, you know, uh, as far as legal action, I'm not being terribly familiar with, with your laws. I'm not sure how to answer that. But I know in our situation, you know, when people ask me, well, you know, I've, I want to enroll in this conservation program. Should I or shouldn't I? And my advice is I, I believe that private property that is unencumbered without any federal ties to it at all is going to be the most valuable commodity in the future. Mm. And anybody who can keep their property out of these federal programs or government programs on any continent are going to be in a very, very good situation. Yeah, New Zealand is unique uh, that we don't have any privilege uh, like a subsidy, a production subsidy. Uh, We had that removed from us in 1985. And to me, that was the gold standard. So um, you should never, ever take money from the state or any incentive Mm -hmm. from the state or you're compromised. And I think that's what you're saying here, that the compromising is a problem. Um, But but the problem I have is that those property potential is being stolen by the regulator without compensation for the takings mm. of that property potential. And no one seems to want to stand up for it in New Zealand. Uh, we're here uh, constantly told that farmers' emissions, whether they're methane or nitrous oxide or their nitrate leaching, is all deleterious to the planet. Um, we now know that methane and nitrous oxide uh, emissions from any source, doesn't matter whether it's from animals or not, is 
pretty much irrelevant in terms of global warming yeah. uh, at all. But yeah. we're not told that. The whole country has been brainwashed into believing we're all bad. So the compensation for taking Zangle in our country should be pure as can be because we don't have any of this, as you call it, the nexus of, uh, nexus of having an offset over here for something over here. Uh, but in New Zealand, we don't have a constitution. We have a Bill of Rights, uh, which is pretty meek. And then on top of that, that was 1990, I think, reform. Maybe it's had some reforms since then that I'm not up to date with. But the RMA, the Resource Management Act, came in 1991. And you might note that these dates are very similar to the time of the Rio agenda and the yeah. like. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and there, there is no compensation for takings under the Resource Management Act in New Zealand. Um, apparently it was in the draft. It was removed in the in the final um, document. So New Zealand regulators have pretty much got an unfettered. Uh, you know, they've got a. They can take without uh, without worrying about it so much. And we don't know. I think what I'm getting at. We don't know how, or I don't think we've found the way to fight back. And we've had 30 years of this, and it's building every year to even a bigger um bigger sway on so um yeah it's 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 interesting that you're facing stuff but from from a each state i imagine has different privileges that they've given their farmers or, or their landowners uh so we're all in a bit of a bind because i have the same argument same and i know i'm ranting on here but netherlands has another problem as well they talk about uh, you know how their farms are being shut down, but they've taken production subsidies, they've taken environmental grants, they've taken so they're basically in, they've sold their soul. How can you come back from that and expect your property right to be upheld? How would you view that? Because I I just I don't see how this works. Yeah, I you know I have the same perspective. You just you if you take that federal funding or the funding from the state they have a say in your property. Mm. I mean, mm. you may not think so, but I know in America, there's enough laws on the books that that all of a sudden they're going to start applying to you that they wouldn't otherwise. So, you know, it's the same, it's the same concept. And I guess if you kind of pull back a little bit and just in understanding property and how important property is, um, our ability to own property is what protects our individual liberties. And if we can't defend that property, and if we can't protect it from the taking by a federal entity or anybody or a state or another individual, we do not have a property right. And, and so, you know, the property, the ownership of property, where, why that's so important to our liberty is because uh, every, every source of wealth starts from the natural resources. And so whoever owns those natural resources is going to control the government. And whoever controls the government is going to decide how, many, how, much, how much of the liberty do the people have or do they not have. Every war that we see that's going on right now, you look at Ukraine and Russia, what's that over? It's over territory. They want more land. What's going on in Israel and Hamas? I mean, there's other issues obviously involved, but it's about territory. They want more land because they know control of the land controls the people. And so um, I think as individuals, and I really see this as an American, I look at yeah. every time I do something to my property that diminishes that right or gives a piece of that away to the government, 
is taking liberty away from future generations that they will never get back. So to me, it's a moral issue. And, you know, I don't know if that helps apply in that situation, but I think all of these problems stem from the individual. You know, when you talk about how do you solve these problems? First, you have to get the individual's beliefs and principles correct and aligned properly. And then you've got to get the family aligned properly. And then you've got to get the community aligned properly. And so, and then that spills up into the state and into the federal. But that's where it starts. And um, I think what you're pointing out in that conversation are the farmers that are willing to give that up. They're, the principles personally are what are suffering. And that is that is indicative of the nation. I yeah. see it here in America as well. Yep. I'll bring something, uh, an article, and I'm sure, Don, you've read this from the New Zealand perspective. But uh, late last year, Margaret, we had this article uh, on one of our MSM calling for a push to value nature as a trillion dollar asset. The article began, it's, it was from Deloitte and Partners. We have these, I mean, just like you, Deloitte and KPMG, these big international accounting firms. So they began, began by saying that according to uh, Banking on Nature, our major, uh, they said we're making a big economic case for investing in natural assets because it is a necessity. Then Deloitte goes on to quote the World Economic Forum <laughs> estimates more than half of the world's capital is a whopping US $44 trillion and is highly dependent on nature. But then, I mean, this is, you know, you already know these bigger accounting firms work with UN and World Economic Forum. What goes on, what this article goes on to say next is what put the chill into me. Lee Gray, the New Zealand Deloitte partner, one of the New Zealand Deloitte partners said, investing in natural capital fits in with the intergenerational long-term lens of the Maori, that's the New Zealand population, uh, worldviews. This, he said, includes the philosophy that humans don't own land. So he's telling mm -hmm. that the indigenous Maori population, let's look at the worldview, that humans don't own land. Instead, we need to act as guardians, protecting the land and holding the responsibility to pass on it to the next in a better condition. They are now like literally saying it. You don't own yeah. land. You do. You just pass it on. And we've had so much of uh, divide and rule in New Zealand. You know, suddenly this country has exploded into looking at everything to a cultural lens through what would probably be called as a Eurocentric or a Maori worldview, or I don't know where people like me fresh off the boat fit in here. But time and again, we are weaponizing now culture to push that same nonsense. It It is relentless, comes on from every direction. If you don't want to look at it, hey, there's more than one ways to skin a cat. Let's start pushing this worldview. And as I was saying earlier, Don has had at least one elected member tell him, didn't you, Don, that the world only needs uh, one billion people? He said um, the, the agenda was two billion, but his preference was one billion. And it was him, to his credit who spooked me into reading about the progressive movement of the late 1890s uh, and then just following the wiring diagram right through to today, really. And, so this is a bureaucrat, uh, uh, currently an elected member, who's been in local government here for over three decades in various roles. This is what they seem to think it is about. Surreal. Yeah, you know, what's so interesting about that that worldview is um, they say individuals don't need to own property. Well, somebody's going to own it, which yeah. is ultimately going to be an individual because somebody has to enforce that. 
Yeah. And so, you know, when you really break down what they're talking about, they're, they're saying you and I don't get to own property. They get to own property. Mm-hmm. So it's an elitist viewpoint. And, mm-hmm. um, and that's the message. I think when people start really understanding that, that I think we will start seeing an uprising against this type of thinking. And, and I'm still kind of waiting for that moment when that turns. I think we're starting to see it in a few places. But um, the way I look at their arguments is they're built on sand. There is no foundation. I mean, this whole concept of natural assets, it is, <laughs> it's not based on a supply and demand economy. Yeah. You know, they are, ma- they are trying to put a price tag on the air we breathe. And, yep. um, exactly. And, and so if we, if we get back to what is the fundamental element of property? Well, there's two things. Number one, control. Do you control it or not? Number two, can you exclude somebody from using it? If you can exclude somebody from using it, that's your property. In other words, I have a piece of land. If you want to use it and I give you permission, that's great. But unless I give you permission, you can't use it. So that's property. So when we talk about air and putting a price tag on air, which is how they're getting to this $5,000 trillion natural asset market Mm -hmm. uh, world economy is by monetizing things like air and water and ecosystem services. So you put a price tag on the air, but how do you exclude somebody from uh, breathing in their portion of air? You know, you can't do it. And the other thing that's that's really idiotic about that is they're, they're monetizing things that um, every individual has to have to live. And it's not a, not a result of whether you work for it or not. It's, it's simply... It's simply the way we are designed, the way the world is designed. And, mm-hmm. you know, God created those things. We didn't. And nobody has a right to own those. And so it's really interesting what they're doing. They're completely flipping the economic system with this natural asset approach. And again, I mean, that's how we see 30 by 30, that huge agenda, which we're fighting in America to permanently protect 30% of the world's lands and oceans. 30 by 30 is there to clear title. That's what it's doing. It's not about conservation. It's to get the small farmer and landowner off the land so that uh, those same entities that are pushing that can come in behind, create the natural asset companies and basically gobble up all these assets and and own the world's resources through these investment firms. So they all work hand in hand. And if you kind of step back and put all the pieces together, it starts making sense but but we look at the natural asset company development in America and we simply call it a Ponzi scheme because yeah. it really it really will not work and I don't think it's intended to work. It yeah. just needs to work long enough to clear title so they gain control of the assets. And people and, give up and that's how the machinery work, doesn't it? It just wears yeah. you down just constantly, like you're talking about your parents' case, nearly three decades long. As John said, that's a life yeah. sentence. But American Stewards for Liberty, and I should mention your website at this point, that's americanstewards.us. So this was founded, you said, after that case, you know, for the Fifth Amendment that your parents took to took to court. Can you tell us a bit more about, uh, you told us before the beginning of this, uh, we began recording, that uh, you're in a third hotel room and you're traveling. Can you tell us a bit more about what you guys actually do? How do you work? How are you organized? And yeah. So we can have some inspiration going around in New Zealand to get a bit more organized here. Absolutely. So a lot of what we do is education. Mm. So uh, we will we'll 
dissect these problems and um, get them back out to our people, our membership, which are largely farmers and ranchers, and um, to keep them informed on what's going on in the nation so that when it comes to elections, when it comes to any programs that are being implemented in their area, they'll recognize them for what they are and they'll know how to fight them. That's one thing we do. The other thing we do is we do work with policy leaders um, and make recommended policies and help um, brief them on issues that are going on uh, across the nation. But it's really, I kind of look at us as, as kind of the coordinated offense. So when an issue comes up, um, because all of these issues, you know, whether it be 30 by 30 or NACs or any of these, they have to be implemented at the local level. Every property rights issue, the regulation has to be implemented at the local level. So we spend a lot of our time strengthening the local level. And that's why we work with a lot of county commissioners. So if we were in your country, we'd be working with you a lot and, and being your support as, as the, the local government and um, helping you understand the issues, helping you know how to fight them, uh, helping to know who to call um, so that your voice and it can be very impactful. But so we do, we spend a lot of time really on the ground, which is why I'm traveling right now. We actually get out in the field and, and, um, and work closely with our commissioners and the landowners to educate them. And then their voice is often what we convey back to the leaders in DC. And um, so we kind of try to connect the two. So there's not, so there's, there's not a, a gap between those two. But a lot of what we do, I think, is, is you would call coordinated offense. When these issues come up, we'll pull all the pieces together, the, um, the lawyers with um, the policymakers, with the grassroots to push a consorted campaign to keep something like 30 by 30 from happening or the iterations of this happening in the, in the different areas. So, so how do you, excuse me? How do you stop uh, the politicization of that? I mean, you're doing this coordinated offence, but everywhere you would look, I'm sure there will be because I know the size of the lobbyist groups in the United mm-hmm. States. There will be thousands of people pushing against you um, with a political agenda. Uh, how how do you keep sane and all this stuff? Because I it just I despair at this stuff. Well, I will tell you, I was given some really good advice when Biden was um, elected and our country was deflated. Um, I personally love Trump uh, and I think he did some fabulous things for our nation and for our issues. And I don't have a problem with him. He is an equal opportunity offender. So he's going to offend all of us at some time. But boy, he gets the work done. So I'm a huge Trump Trump fan. But um, right after Biden was elected, I was given some really good advice because I was saying, how are we going to get people to understand what's going on? And and it was an 80-year-old lady who looked at me and she said, Margaret, don't worry about changing their minds. You just have to beat them. And so like, it took a weight off my shoulders. Said, That's right. I'm not going to try and change their mind. We're just going to outsmart them. And, um, and we did that on 30 by 30. And just to give you guys a little bit of hope, because that, I think that's actually a really good, um, a really good place to start as far as how to fight back. Um, we were, once Biden was elected, we started pouring through the environmental materials, uh, to find out what they were going to be proposing in America. And that's when I first started reading about 30 by 30. And so we really dug into it. We saw it coming up in all their literature and we thought this is his agenda. This is how he's going to try and take the property. So we were ready for the 30 by 30 agenda. And from the moment he took office, I read every executive order he signed until day six, he finally signed the one that implemented 30 by 30 in America. 
and then contacted our local counties. Like, so I'd be contacting you and saying, hey, this is what's going on. This is what he's doing. And um, we had a county in Colorado that said, okay, let's do a resolution to oppose it. So we hired an attorney. We got to get a resolution done. In three weeks, we had the first resolution passed and a whole Q&A booklet put together that people could download so they could understand what 3530 was because most people hadn't even heard about this. So that's how we, we, we pulled the information together, make it understandable for people so they can act. Spread that out to our network. We don't have a huge network, but I call our network super spreaders. They will send it to 10, 15, 100 other of their closest friends. And so in a matter of about three months, we had about 80 of these resolutions passed across the country. And so every time they were passed by a local government, there was a local news article. Well, then they started becoming regional news articles, and then they started hitting the national media, this opposition. And it was all grassroots. And we also were able to get the attention of a really good governor in Nebraska, Governor Ricketts, who's now Senator Ricketts. And um, within, I mean, the first week of March, he came out and opposed this and then led a letter to the other governors. And so he was very good at getting it educated. And we had a really good leader in Congress who went back with the information and she spread it like wildfire. So what the dynamics at the time is our opponents, the environmentalists thought we were out of commissioner, we were deflated, we had been pounded down and beat down so bad by the election that they could just put in whatever they wanted. So they were kind of gleefully, um, you know, enjoying this ride of implementing 30 by 30 while we were doing the work from the grassroots up to the point that when they finally realized there was opposition and there was a lot of opposition, and um, it was already branded in the press as a land grab, and they couldn't undo that. So by May of 2021, so just three months later, what did they do? Well, they changed the name. They changed the name yes. of the program. Now the, now the program is called America the Beautiful. And so, but, you know, that's like a moment, that's when you know you've really got them. And still to this day, they can't argue us on the facts. Everything that they are building it on is built on sand. And so our material stands up to every attack that they have, that they have gone after every, I, they've made a lot of personal attacks, which we never respond to, but um, every attack, um, substantively, our material stands up to. And so that was the beginning. And that really took the cells out from underneath them. They were planning just to roll this across America without any opposition. And they found out they had considerable opposition. And it started from the ground, ground, the grassroots, you know, the individual, the county commissioners sitting there saying, no, we're not going to let this happen. We're passing a resolution. The local citizen who says, we're not going to let this happen in our community. Our community is going to say no and takes it to our county commissioner. You know, and and it, so it starts with that educational process of getting people to oppose this from the ground up, and that works its way up through the rest of the political system. And so we have a really good base of people in America now that understand what thirty by thirty is, and they are fighting it, you know, on every front that they can, which has really slowed it down. Hasn't stopped it, but it's certainly slowed it down. Okay, so and on that front, um, is can you give us a little bit of the C40 cities concept that you've written about mm. as well, just as an adjunct to all of this, and then we'll have to, to wind up. But um, yeah, what's that, uh, what's that sentiment like in the States? Well, so there are 40 cities across America that have signed on to the C40 concept, which is they will... It, it's, it's like if you've heard about the 15-minute cities, that's something else that it's been called. <laughs> so 
they want to limit the transportation of people. You'll only have um, so many hours that, that you are allowed to travel um, a certain amount of distance. Uh, there's no meat, no meat and sold inside the cities. Um, a whole bunch of these kind of just the liberal um, progressive regulations that they're trying to do. And so unfortunately, we've had 40 cities in America agree to this and work towards getting to this C40 status. And one of them, unfortunately, is 40 miles from where we live. So we're really seeing the fruits of what that looks like. It is rampant crime, rampant homelessness um, that's going on. You know, a city that that really 10 years ago was was very safe and was a travel destination, worldwide travel destination. Now people are afraid to go there an awful lot like San Francisco. You know, we're looking just like that. And it's because of the C40 concept and um, all of that being put in place. It's the way to destroy, to destroy a city. Well, and you called them liberal progressives, and I have a view that they're um, exactly the opposite. That they are um, they're regressive and uh, the opposite of liberal, illiberal, perhaps. Um, uh, and just and I might, I might steal that from you. <laughs> I might left. start using that over here. <laughs> I don't know what's happened. The left used to rage against the machine, didn't they? Literally. Yes, they did. And now they seem to, it's like, again, I've used this earlier, but govern me harder, daddy. That's that's how they seem to look at this. If I look at the yeah. C40 City's own blurb, they say, our organization knows climate, social, and economic justice can only be achieved together. And that's why our mission is to halve the emissions of member cities within a decade. Now, unlike you, Margaret, we've had just one city sign up, but that one is bad enough. It's Auckland. That's home to a third of New Zealand's population. And when I tell somebody who's heading up there for a weekend of shopping or something, and I tell them, you know, well, do it while you can, uh, according to their roadmap for urban consumption, you'd just be allowed nine new clothes a year, eight if you're lucky, three if they get really ambitious. And they look at me like I've grown horns, but that's also symptomatic. I think of the laziness we've suddenly, I think I I look around and people don't want to read. It's another 70-page volume, The Future of Urban Consumption in C40 Cities. But I sometimes think a reality check will only come when the pain becomes personal. Yeah. And that, and you know, I think that's, that's why, why I have a lot of faith in America because, um, you know, we've been living the dream for a long time mm-hmm. and people are starting to wake up and realize, oh my gosh, the president's actually doing this. I mean, even things, our border, how open our border is and what is pouring across our border is really scary. And um, I don't know if you remember how America pulled out of the of Af- Afghanistan and that debacle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That I shocked. That shocked Americans because, I mean, as 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 individual Americans, we never, ever thought our government would be that irresponsible. I mean, absolutely irresponsible in that situation. So things like that have happened where what I what I where I see the hope is, you know, when we started this organization 30 years ago, um, I could have given the same discussion that we just talked about, about property rights, and I would have been in a room full of people glazing over, mm-hmm. right? Now, when we talk about property rights in America, people are sitting up and paying attention, and it's like the light bulb turns on. They have forgotten how important property rights are to our individual liberties, but they're start because of all of the extreme things going on worldwide, they're now paying attention and they're looking for answers. And so 
that's why I actually have a lot of hope because I'm, I'm running into people all the time that would have completely just glazed over with what we're talking about today. And now they're saying, wait a minute. Okay. That makes sense. That I makes guess sense. That. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it's only so many times people can see, because uh, I remember that uh, pulling out when the US pulled out, oh. was it a dozen Marines that were blown up by the suicide bomber at Kabul airport at the same time when a bloke dressed in a skirt was talking about LGBTQ rights of the uh, US right. military bloke on uh, Twitter. And yes. I remember my brother, ex-Indian army officer, he and I were chatting about what is this going on? Seriously, what the hell has happened? And yeah. You know, people will will get a reality check, realization sooner or later. But uh, Don, yeah. what do you think? 30 years of being in this. Well, art. I, I often use the term comfortably numb, um, Margaret, because uh, my fellow farmers have been comfortably numb while, well, I'm, I'm guessing less than 10 of us around the whole country seem to have the same thinking that I had. And I just, I struggle to live with this, um, that uh, it's a future that I don't want for this country, uh, but we don't seem to have the courage to to tackle it the way you are, with the enthusiasm you are, Margaret, because we have uh, what I would say is a bunch of appeasers. Farmers have learned to be appeasers because they've been so browbeaten. Um, and yeah. of course, the urbanites um, don't feel this. I, and that's a concern that I have even just listening to you, that I haven't got a feeling uh, that the city populations, the big city populations of the United States are getting the, to grips with this. I know certainly where where my family lives in California, they don't feel this sort of tension that, that I feel. So, yeah, I think we've all got a long ways to go. Um, that's my view. We but I, I, I think you've put on a great um, a great show today for us to, and our listeners because you've put up, given us some hope, actually given us some hope and uh you know we've had an hour of your time and i think we could have had two hours of your time or three hours of your time so i'm hoping that we'll get you back uh in the future and um, perhaps i might even have my thoughts all organized a bit better than i had because there's so much in here i don't know how you've distilled it down so i mean you're paid to to distill it down and i'm not perhaps but um <laughs> uh it's it's the way you've presented your case is better than um, that I've heard in New Zealand. So for that, we're grateful that our listeners at least are going to hear someone who has distilled it down and presents it in a manner that is understandable because, yeah, New Zealanders just aren't talking about this nearly enough. So, Margaret, thank you for coming on to RCR Greenwash today and um, may you um, have a successful um, time telling your story in the weeks and months and years ahead. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you so much mm -hmm. for joining us. And, you know, I was listening to your father's, uh, I was reading your father's passing, of his passing in New York Times, and I'm sure he'd be very proud. The article entirely mm -hmm. listed of all that he went through and you're carrying on the mantle. Thank you so mm -hmm. much for doing this, Margaret. This thank you. Appreciate a great it. service. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. 
Welcome back. You're with the Greenwash team, Josh Preet and John Nicholson here this morning. Hope you're doing well. And I hope you had a chance to listen in to our last interview. Oh, I should say the first interview with the guest this morning, Margaret Byfield from the American Stewards for Liberty. I certainly found it very inspiring that someone could take what would have been a very rough experience seeing her parents struggle as a child and turn it into this mission Margaret is on. Yeah, and it's sort of the same sort of thing that I've been worried about for my entire farming life once I realised that uh, the regulator was coming at me in, an, in, a, in every corner of my life. I sort of started to question stuff. And, you know, we've talked about this time and time again, Jasper, New Zealanders have been comfortably numb against the the thrust of the stuff. You think, oh, there's not too much happening. It's just we're okay, we can live with, with this new rule or or this uh, this this type of concept. And, you know, I've even now got to a point where I used to be thinking that I would, in my farming systems, I would do stuff that was innovative and what you would deem best practice, which is probably another um, one of those words that you need to worry, out, worry about, two words. And so whenever I hear best practice now, I know that means the regulator is coming inside your gate as well. So don't dignify any of the stuff uh, unless you want to end up in the way that the the byfields found the hard way in America. Yeah. And I'm very surprised, John. I have, we're now into our 15th year here, and I can hand on my heart say that at least for the last 10 years, I've been really worried. You know, the first few years you head into a new country and there's no two ways to put it migrating is always at least in my experience and a few other friends is always traumatic you you leave roots you leave uh, all that's familiar you you leave i mean when i remember coming out here the first day i drove into town my husband had a car he had come a few months before me and i was in otrahonga driving from the farm to the town was 10 k's and I saw this big sign that says headlights on day and night. It was winter, August. But Vicero wasn't that bad. And we had an old 90s Toyota Corolla. And I turned the headlights on. I thought, all right, this might be the rule here. The sign is really big. And then I go and, you know, everything was different. Than, I'm used to haphazard parking. I'm not used to orderly parking like it was in Otrohonga then. And I parked it and I forgot to turn the lights off. Oh. And I come back to my car 45 minutes later. The car won't start. I don't have a cell phone. I had only landed there 48 hours ago. I hadn't got one. I didn't know a soul. And I was like, ugh. So still, somehow, I managed to, you know, flag a bystander, got the car going, got home and all of this. But Even to someone like me, you know, a new kid off the block, fresh off the ship, it was obvious very soon that something is happening uh, that is not right. I, when I came here, I have never, I would like to believe I have never asked for special treatment. Just treat Mm. me like everyone else. That's all. I don't want to be treated above or below. I don't want to be patronized, but I don't want to be talked to. All of this. And there seems to be this whole thing now about Look at me, how special I am, how special I am. I deserve special privileges. I deserve a wee bit extra here. I deserve a bit more to make the things, you know, make it a level playing field. And in case, listeners, you haven't noticed, 
I have uh, two words that I absolutely detest. The first is, of course, sustainable, because it means anything but. And the other is equitable, equality of outcomes, not equality, equity. They want equity. And this has now morphed and morphed into such a, it's taken on a life of its own in this country. And we've often heard David Seymour. And, you, you know, you, you're an act supporter, I'm not on. And somehow we still managed to uh, have a civil conversation, you and I. But uh, David has always, David Seymour has always, you know, harangued down about the Ministry of Pacific Peoples. I don't see too many people looking at this other ministry called the Ministry for Ethnic Communities that was sort of formalized in 2021, though it had its beginnings a few years back. No one seems to be talking about what this Ministry for Ethnic Communities that has seen the staff now balloon to 67 people is doing, or what its intention is, what its outcome is. And yet, this ministry funds $4.2 million a year, doles them out to various special interest groups across the country. I'm surprised it's only $4.2 million at this point, Jaspreet. Um, interestingly, uh, I detect your cynicism and um, <laughs> uh, and I'm amused or unamused by this spending as well. So can we just go back a wee bit? I want to understand how hard it was for you to get to New Zealand and what did you expect when you came here? I mean, it is, uh, you said it, uh, it's the toughest thing you can do is pick up your, leave your roots behind and go on a big adventure. Uh, was it? You obviously planned it because you actually had to fill out some paperwork and meet a bit of criteria. How difficult was that part? Because most of us won't have a clue what immigration involves, um, even though, uh, as we'll show a bit later, the statistics of um, migration to New Zealand, it's an industry in itself. It is an industry in itself. Now, I'm talking 2008, Don. And uh, when I say it's, it's traumatic, it's, it's uh, probably that's a harder word. It's, it's unsettling. It is leaving all that's familiar and comfortable and you know what to expect to head off to someplace where I and money. My husband, we didn't know a soul. Uh, it was not easy. Immigration, uh, New Zealand, at that time when we came, we had come specifically for one thing, just one thing, farming. Because, you know, Punjabis, just good for two things, fighting or farming. My family in the armed forces does that, does the fighting bit. So that's what we came out here for. We, the only thing we looked up was the fact that agriculture was not subsidized. India, Punjab, huge subsidies without which it wouldn't be viable. And uh, then the immigration uh, used to have a little, I think was it enz.org.nz? It had a sidekick website where you would go and have a look at what does a dozen eggs cost in New Zealand? What does, you know, a loaf of bread, a pound of butter, fuel and all of this. So looked at a few bits and bobs like this. But that's about it. My husband had landed a job. He, as I said, came a few months before me. And I joined him in August of that year, right when carving was at its peak. So, so uh Two other things. I want to know the cost of getting through the hoops. And secondly, um, the immigration system uh, uh, consultants, is that a great big cost? Because most of us haven't a clue on this. And there's another thing that bothers me is most of us had this belief that you had to come to New Zealand with a pocket full of cash. Um, you know, unless you had a lot of money, you couldn't get here. And secondly, um, the third question is, 
how is it that um, extended family seem to clip on so easily? That's the three questions that often New Zealanders ask, and most of us don't deal with this. So have you got any uh, no, farming, wisdom on this? Farming, when we came in, was on the ISSL, immediate short skill list. At that time, it was restricted to certain areas in New Zealand, like Waikato, where we landed our first job. Farming jobs were in short skill, you know, there were skill shortages there, and that's where we applied for a job and landed one there. There is a whole lot of your uh, medical fitness tests, your English language testing system. So I had to present, I remember both my husband and I, international English language testing system scores of over 6.0 in each of the four modules of reading, writing, listening, speaking. There is, of course, there's immigration fees, which are close to, I don't know what it was then, but I believe it was close to seven $800 per person. Plus, because that time immigration was so painful, every single you had to dot every single I and dash every T. And we were both farming, you know, 4 a.m. morning starts. Didn't have time, so we had a consultant. So the consultant probably doubled the cost. So I'd say at all in all, it'll account to about five, $6,000 exercise for the two of us that time. But you had to stay. First of all, you get residency in New Zealand. And my knowledge, listeners, might be outdated. I'm talking 2008-ish onwards. But two years in New Zealand, if you got a job that was then, because, you know, joining as a farmhand at that time, farm assistant, it was not considered a skilled job. Whereas today it is, I think. Mm -hmm. We had to work our way up to farm manager, 2010, and that's when he applied for a residency. You get your residency. Even that time, they want every single thing. They wanted proof. I remember from our employer that time that we were actually managing. So that involved proof like uh, I was managing the accounts there and we were the ones speaking to the various vendors, be it livestock of, you know, livestock and corporation of New Zealand, what semen do we want to use, what bulls do we want to use and all of those. So we had to submit those sort of emails as proof that we were actually managing the farm and not glorified farmhands, if you know what I mean. We had that level of responsibility attached to the job. There was no median wage. They sort of expected, I think, $60,000, $65,000 a year. But there was no median wage. Right now, today, they just tell you, if you're earning less than $30 an hour, you can't uh, apply. It as, you can't even get a working visa in New Zealand. But at that time, I think we were getting $15, $16 an hour. Got our residency in 2011. And after five years of living in New Zealand, you get your permanent residency. And then after that, a few years later comes citizenship when you effectively change your passport. Uh, and because India doesn't allow dual passports, uh, I surrendered. Uh, we both surrendered us and we're now Kiwi citizens. So it's, it's a long process. It but, is expensive. Yeah. But you don't have to have a bank balance full of... Um... No, like as cash. I said, no, 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 nothing, nothing like okay. that. See, that's it's an often talked about um, misnomer by people in, that I mix with that, oh, no, migrants here have to have um, a lot of money. Well, no, you know, no. I'm sure I'm sure if that was the case, um, it would be my, a different my parents, profile. <laughs> my parents have a whale of uh, the grandparent visa here, which right. again is a temporary visa. So what that gives both them and us, then they don't have one now, it's a three-year visa that would allow 
parents uh, or grandparents, and that only happened, of course, when I had children, that they could come unlimited number of times in the span of three years. Mm. You could not stay for three years. It had to be a total of no more than 18 months over, you know, 36 months. But they could come and go. And that sort of gave me the peace of mind that, you know, I had a sick child initially and some other issues going on. So they could just hop on a flight from Delhi if I ever needed a hand and I was stuck, uh, say, carving and whatever. And they didn't need to wait for New Delhi to for six weeks to process their visas. But even that did not require money big money pretty much required us to be able to show that we can you know support them if they are here for six months they have a roof over their heads and we'll be you know taking care of their boarding lodging health travel and all of this there won't be a burden on the exchequer but yeah so isn't it interesting i mean you and i mentioned this a couple of weeks ago we thought as a percentage of the population uh the change in the population total in new zealand new zealand has probably had the fastest growing um population in the world yep and i don't think that's far wrong um when you note in 2003 i think we had 4.1 million uh or less and the projection by 2020 was 4.6 million uh i remember reading and now we're at uh, 5.2 or so million and i've just read this statistic from uh the 20 the end of august this year Overall annual migrant arrivals to that point, 31st of August 23, reached an all-time high of 225,400. With 115,100 migrant departures over the same period, New Zealand had a record net migration gain of 110,000. Now, even as recently as a few months ago when we were talking about this, we had a net gain. We were talking of around 90,000. And just earlier on, it was 70, 69,000. So uh, what's more, it says there's a net loss of 42,600 New Zealand citizens in the same period, but was compensated by a net gain of 152,800 uh, non-New Zealand citizens. So, I mean, these it's hard to believe. I mean, you and your husband were two people, but we've got 152,800 non-New Zealand citizens recorded as migrating to New Zealand. That's a hell of a machine um, to set up to have, you know, Immigration New Zealand must have a massive workforce to to uh, process all this. I, you know, I've sat through various council workshops and uh, even other local government briefings, Don, where they speak about the fact that New Zealand's number one year European population is declining and not being mm. replaced. The second point was, if I remember, the Maori population, uh, again, the elderly is declining, but has been replaced. And the third point that has always struck with me is that the vast majority of our future workforce is sitting in India and Africa. How do you know that? I have no idea. How do you know that? I, I don't understand. And we've had, as you said, so some of the fastest growths in the world, 4 million in 2003 and just 16 years 16 years in 2019, we reached 5 million. It's a 25% increase mm. in 16 years. And when, I mean, the this year's data, when the citizens that were lost, they said 42,600 New Zealand citizens were lost because you were only talking about the net mm. departures and comings. Mm. They were compensated by a gain of 152,800 non-New Zealanders. So mm. 42,000 New Zealanders were replaced by 152 non-New Zealanders. 
they say we have some of the lowest unemployment rates right now the job market is very tight the wages are putting a pressure on the reserve bank says again need to high grade because of the pressure of you know the rising um, wages but we our social welfare is not decreasing that burden is not decreasing if you have record high unemployment how can you also have record high welfare spending how can you have record high hardships and especially when you say your wages are rising i i'm no economist but all of these things stand at stock stock odds to me and on top of that how do you provide the infrastructure that's required uh for this rapid expansion now if if you're a builder a, a, a plumber a drain layer a road maker a concrete mixer yeah whatever this is a panacea this country yeah. is just uh we're always behind going to be behind the eight ball as we've proven in recent years let's build a hundred thousand houses and what did they build a few thousands uh, in in six years um not that i expect the government to build houses but lots of other people do um and so this is putting a massive um ask on the system of New Zealand that we once thought we had. No wonder there's growing pains is probably my point. No wonder there's growing pains. And we're always struggling to have um, the right allocation of resource to, for instance, fix the bridges in Southland. Yeah. You know, how many bridges have we got that are um, under threat of... Um, pretty much the whole lot, Don. Pr- pretty much is- the whole lot. The underfunding. So my my point on that as well, if we add on to that, and it's great, by the way, to hear Cam Slater and Paul Brennan talking about local government basically being out of control and their spending. And, you know, I've always had the view that you fix potholes before you um, do anything else. Uh, that's, that's in a glib sense. You, you, there's so much local government does that it just shouldn't. Um, and there's more... There's more- of this population coming because mm. if you if i go to and guys again i my one stop shop is the un if you go to population.un.org mm. the united nations has a department of economics and social affairs under which they have a population division so population.un.org and i am playing around with their graphs there and i'm looking at selected new zealand selected probabilistic projections for the total population and they seem to think that we could be hitting 6 million by 2040 or even sooner depending on you know which uh, particular they have 90% confidence 70% confidence 50% confidence and uh, australia seems to be going on a similar trajectory because they also have a subset the united nations website population.org.nz, population.un.org, where you look at Australia and New Zealand combined, and they seem to think right now we are ballpark 30 million, 25 million hours, 5 million hours, but the UN seems to think we're going to be hitting 40 million Oceania in a matter of uh, 10 years or so, possibly. Well, if Yeah, well, let's go back to New Zealand only, though, from um, today uh, till 2050. They're mm. saying they're saying there's only going to be, and I use that word advisedly only, about another six hundred and fifty thousand more, maybe seven hundred thousand more than today. Well, they've mm. got it wrong. They've had it wrong. Um, the, the projections we talked about earlier were wrong by a significant factor. It wouldn't surprise me if we're heading to um, well over um, 
shoot that mark of, of 6.1 million people based on uh, what we've had today. That's only another million more than now. Than now, based on the current migration settings, we're going to blow that out of the water within by 2030. Yeah, if in 16 years we could add a million, we could increase 25%. So now our baseline is not four, it's five million. You add 25% to five million. Yeah, that's a million and a bit. And this is this world without borders that we talk about. Um, you know, you, you you talk about the United Nations agenda, which is to um, push people around the world and spread the load effectively. Yep. Have this, and I've talked about the CNN strap line of years ago, the world without borders, thinking there was nothing to see there. Well, you know, New Zealand, if as I said before, if you're um if you're a tradie, life's gonna be good. The consumption New Zealand is not forget about climate change, it's nothing to worry about here and- because we, we're gonna be growing like topsy. And yet we can't afford the basics. It took me 48 uh, hours to get Sarah in an ER to get a broken arm seen to uh, in Southland this January. I remember my parents calling me from India over those two days. Has she been seen? Has she been seen? No, mom. And my dad finally losing. What What do you mean? Is it possibly take a just flight and come out here and get something done? Mom, dad came out here this year, April. And I remember, even though I know that they, <laughs> my dad's ex-army man, very careful planner, he gets his paperwork in order. But my standard question to them is, You've got your insurances. You've got your medical insurances. We've got nothing here. I can get a wet out to see a cow 24-7. But mom, dad, you know, in their 70s, dad with his uh, other issues, health issues, do you please make sure you have your paperwork in order? Because if something happens, I'd rather they pop on a flight, get to Delhi and get seen to within hours rather than days and weeks and months that people languish on waiting lists here. And that's where my worry lies. What sort of future are we looking at? And that's not just one part. This is, we are planning for these sort of migrations. We had Alan Bullard, the Reserve Bank governor, speak at the United Nations Association of New Zealand conference last month, listeners, where he spoke that we need to be ready. And I think he referred to Oceania, though he kept saying us, New Zealanders, and they have never seen the scale before. He said millions of climate refugees. So is that where the next 10 million that Australia and New Zealand are going to add, oh. is that going to be the guys? Well, that's uh, clearly the demo. You know, you, you, we had Craig Kelly on in May, I think it was, and boy, he was talking about how migration in Australia is just going going crazy. Um, you know, the demand for property uh, to house people is just burgeoning. And by the way, Alan Bollard is a former Reserve Bank governor up to about, what, 2012. He's now, I think he's chairman of the Productivity Commission. Is <laughs> yeah, Productivity I'm Commissions. Sure. I'm yeah. not sure. Um, but yeah, look, I, I remember about 30 years ago, I made the statement, I'd rather have New Zealand with 2 million people, all very wealthy, um, sort of living on beachfronts and um, being being a country of uh, very wealthy people and having all these all the services, but you know that was, in my view, stupid. I I was young and I was sort of thinking that's a really good place to be. Um, I've since changed my tune and realised that population dynamics does allow innovation, does create um, things that small societies just generally don't have unless they're got gold reserves or oil reserves but but so my and my last point is but the there's only one common denominator in all of this that should be resistant 
uh, we should be resistant to is the size of government relative to each individual. And as far as I'm concerned, we are just massively overgoverned. Over, uh, you know, there's so much command and control and central planning going on. And until we destroy that side of our national psyche that we love the, the government to be in our life, well, at least 50% of New Zealanders do because they voted for it. In fact, you'd argue that even more voted for it recently. They just want the government to be all around them, have that security blanket of the government. The government must do. Um, so I've woken up to the fact that population's not all bad. I, you know, expanding the population, I think that's great. I, I but, think but on token hand, diversity. Yeah, they keep saying they keep saying diversity. And I would venture opinion that I'm here because of Agenda 2030. When one of these, uh, when the World Bank came to Punjab with the, you know, Green Revolution and sort of systematically destroyed farming there, that's what made a lot of things unviable. I would uh, also possibly, I mean, if I look back, my grandmom, Dawn, she was born and she died without owning a passport, right? And she was, she was a school teacher, retired as a principal, my mom's mom. She probably, at the most, she ventured to maybe within a 2,000 kilometer radius in her, her lifetime from where she was born. And that would be to visit us at some of the remote outposts. You know, my dad would be posted and coming over. Lives at some time you had, were those, were those wrong? Were those people who stayed where they were? Was that wrong? There's always been innovation. There have always been, you know, explorers, people who pushed who've gone, you know, even though they might have feared, feared dangerous sea creatures or dragons might eat them up, or they, their boat might fall over the edge of the earth, who've always ventured out. But some of this, what's being driven right now, is being driven by very specific agendas, very specific agendas. Mm. And I will come back to that point. Migration is never easy. It is not easy, and the governments know it. And that's when you start having a few of these ministries develop initially. But then these ministries take on those globalist agendas. I will, I think at this point, we don't have much time. I'm going to try to see if I can play a clip from what the Ministry of uh, Diversity of uh, Ethnic Communities seems to think that its mission is. Tinakoto. Kumusta. Nihoma. Hola a todos. Vanakam. Malo lava le soy for. Kia ora, apakabar. My name is Mervyn Singham and I am the Chief Executive of the Ministry for Ethnic Communities. I want to tell you about the Ethnic Communities Graduate Program. It is an initiative that provides skilled graduates from ethnic communities with a meaningful first employment opportunity in the public service. We have been working very hard on this initiative for well over a year now. There are a couple of things our ministry is trying to achieve with this program. In the immediate term, we are trying to address the representation of ethnically diverse employees and the barriers they face to accessing employment in the public sector. But our end game is even more ambitious. We want to improve the representativeness of the public service and to broaden its cultural competency. Don't get me wrong. New Zealand has a public service to be proud of. It's recognized internationally for integrity and effectiveness. 
but the public service needs employees with the right mix of knowledge and skills to meet government priorities, provide trusted and responsive services and to deliver the best possible outcomes for New Zealand. The Ethnic Communities Graduate Programme um, is an early in careers programme which is, uh, the main objective is to increase representation of our mandated communities in the public service. Um, and so, in short, we um, choose suitably qualified or suitably experienced graduates and we place them into uh, one of many public service agencies for 18 months. It's been 100% positive for, for our team and hopefully... So, Don, what did you think of that? Well, I wondered, um, just looking at you over the, over the internet at a distance, <laughs> listeners, what the hell is Jasper thinking here? <laughs> I was thinking, what would she be thinking about this? Um, I, as far as I'm aware, and I, you know, I've only known you a short time, really. Did you expect any of this stuff? And, and does this make any sense to you that this is a need? I know, I know, there's um, there's many countries involved here in terms of the ethnicity diversity in this country, but did you expect any of this stuff? No. I, I, as I said, I don't want to patronize. I also don't want to be talked down to, but that's about it. I find myself in local government, but I did not use any special privilege. I don't want any special privileges granted to me. I, I'm i amazed at the thing that a migrant landing in Auckland or Christchurch or whichever international airport you get onto, their thought is, hey, I need to see a face like mine in the New Zealand public service because otherwise this country is racist. Otherwise, this country won't do the right by me because only people who look like me would do the right by me. I have never understood that. They are setting up, you know, you have this this particular ministry. We have now the Auckland University has this particular department. It's set up for uh, looking at modern day slavery things in supply chain. And I would often say, I mean, there's no way of sugarcoating this, but many of the times when we see migrants being exploited, we've seen that in liquor stores and restaurants and others, it's usually another migrant employing them. But mm. that doesn't seem to be highlighted. So when I look at this, and we will go, uh, listeners, Don and I, as the weeks go on, we're going to be looking into what they are funding, the sort of courses they are funding, the sort of organizations, NGOs, charities they are funding. But right now, this is just a taste into this. I, I find this galling down, and I find this openly racist to be doing this. I I did not come to New Zealand to find a, to create a mini India here. You know, if I was missing India so much, I'd, I'd hop on the next plane and get back home. I came here to New Zealand, which was known for its ag sector, because that's what my husband wanted to do. I could I can tell you I didn't share his enthusiasm in the beginning. <laughs> I've been more a pen pusher all my life. And I was like, right, well, if you are going, okay. I, and I, I did this paperwork in India because that's the sort of thing that the entire family seemed to think, yep, you you do that sort of boring the red tape stuff. But, yeah, this is But, but you don't. It, well, I've just, and, and as you say, we haven't got time to go through it all today. There is so much in the documents that I've got in front of me. Um, from grant schemes to expectation of getting onto boards and um, and other support mechanisms, including emergency responses and things like that. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, surely we've all got the same requirement and the public service should re- should be colorblind and ethnicity blind so colorblind is what i would have thought the public service should have been and that's an act for, uh, party philosophy by the way uh, and it's Brief. funny funny you should say that i remember in one of our first uh, council retreats here we've only had one not too far from here uh, a small uh, day trip it was and i remember saying this particularly when you had to introduce ourselves i said i've been raised in so and so places and i said there's one thing i've been brought up to be and that's is to be color blind i used that exact phrase while introducing myself to my fellow colleagues around the table and yeah. i'm amazed why that is not a fundamental principle of well, it used to be for act and i think it still is so um i'm surprised that if David Seymour is not going after this um, ministry as well, I'd be surprised because he's going after the ministry for um, Pacific uh, Pacifica. Yeah, so let's hope that there's a bit of a clean out going on uh, soon because this is all part of this self-aggrandizement of of people. They just um, they'll if there's if there's a politician willing to uh, ingratiate people with cash, uh, they're gonna gonna milk it for all they can. And uh, we used to talk for all the tea in China was the saying. Well, that's what's happening here. Yeah, and uh, you know, people have been going back on their words. Uh, I remember, was it last election? Was a one before that? Winston Peters uh, was Shane uh, his deputy that time and ends it first what's the last name shane jones shane jones shane jones and he was supposedly he was saying some things which the newspaper was saying he's very racist and they were sort of almost platforming on an anti-migration platform you know this thing and then winston peters is the one who signed the un global compact for migration just this weekend gone there was this uh report on gb news about this one particular village in scotland somewhere and I won't even try to pronounce the name because I cannot. Um, one particular village of 120 people, they have been allotted 950 Ukrainian uh, refugees. 950. And you have the older people there sort of saying, you know, trying to politely say that this is oh too hard. I mean, you should call it out for what it is. This is sheer nonsense. But uh, just billions of dollars of money laundering to ukraine wasn't enough and now this is coming on but are we ready for uh, that sort of a thing and you know you might have thought don and i we've gone on a few disparate lines but to sort of try to bring it all together we are looking at the same un agendas here we're looking at the population growth that we've seen in new zealand we are looking at the demographics and the projections that the united nations uh have made for New Zealand on their particular uh, their social and economic division and their population team has said what's coming ahead is is massive migration but I think unlike you know US where you can just open the southern border and let everyone stream in we are so far away in the Pacific that it'll have to be done through different means and you know have to be sort of uh, somehow made to be palatable to the average public but this is something we are facing. And at the same time, we don't have enough infrastructure. We are being pushed into these high-rise, high-density cities. And we are losing any sort of say in our own destinies. And that's probably the biggest uh, reality check we need to have sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. I think so, Jasper. Just, and just uh, another question, though, mm-hmm. is are you, you're not saying you're against uh, your um, your 
ethnicity having their their cultural days where they I think there's a Diwali festival on at the moment or about to yeah. happen. Are you yeah. against that or are you sort of saying, no, that's fine, just don't expect uh, any special privileges to have it? Is, I think that's what you're saying. That's what I'm saying, Don. As mm. you know, all of these uh, Lodi and Diwali and all of these, at one time the community would just fund it themselves. Occasionally it wasn't even funding. It was like, okay, you're bringing this, I'm doing this for the potluck, someone else is doing this, someone you manage the games for the children. It all used to happen organically. Now, suddenly, all communities across the country have organized themselves. They keep applying for these fundings for this $4.2 million that comes from here. And it gets really commercialized. It A few weeks ago, let me, let me put it this way. A few weeks ago, in my role on the community board where I am, where I sit, we had to turn down a, small, a request for a couple of grand, I believe it was, from the older population, one of these areas for something because, oh, it doesn't meet the mandate. And this is, I'm talking about a very impoverished socioeconomic area where I am from, my ward lies in. And yet we have the Ministry of Ethnic Communities doling out $4.2 million to everything willy-nilly without any outcomes. And they have N number of senior citizens clubs, Indian senior citizens club, Punjabi, Sikh, this, that, and the other, that money is going to yet I could not give $2,000 to my own ratepayers in the district. This is what's calling to me. And that's what you get when you ditch colorblindness and taking people on the face value for all these cultural and diversity and equity narratives. That's what you get. You start, you stop looking after your own backyard. And that's what I'm worried about. I'm worried about seeing what I thought I left behind in India, the divide and rule following me here. I could possibly not put it any better. And Jasper, you've taught me quite a lot today about stuff and you've made me um, sort of, and I know we're going to talk about it another day, a bit a bit more in mm. depth, but gee, the information you've sent me, um, the links to the Ministry for Ethnic Communities and that uh, I've gone to their dashboard as we're speaking and there is about a hundred different languages being spoken by our migrants um here yeah sure the predominant is english predominance is english but um african 23000 um uh, that's i know that most of them can probably speak english as well but there's some some fairly obscure uh uh languages, languages. in this list that i've never even heard of and man if if they're struggling uh, to to uh, assimilate in with an English-speaking society. Um, the bigger issue I have is even why would we try to confuse it with Tirao? I <laughs> hope we're not confusing the ethnic communities with Tirao. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, we saw this article uh, just last week when uh, the school principals are saying increase in new migrant students in Auckland is putting a strain on English language teaching resources. Hmm. It's it's going to be a problem. But, yeah, that's that's what you get when you suddenly, instead of getting everyone you know get them colorblind this is the main language this is what we do you have suddenly started saying yep let us give you this much to look after your own language and you are effectively creating more pockets of people who are not going to assimilate well you know i've shared a board uh, of a company that had over 330 staff there was massive diversity of um of ethnicity in there no one talked about it 
No one talked about it. These people were professionals, able to do their job. No one ever, ever mentioned, oh, he's from Pakistan or he's from India or he's from Look, South how, Africa. How much, how much more diverse can you get? You have got me, you know, a Jasprit <laughs> Boparai from a tiny village of Longowal on the Indo-Pakistan border in Southland farming. Diversity just happens by itself. You don't start pushing it uh, at the cost, at the expense of putting your own roading infrastructure, your own health, lang- uh, school infrastructure at mm. risk. And that's where I think Don and I will wrap up today. But uh, rest assured, this is something we're going to be going into more detail of what the Ministry of Ethnic Communities is funding. Because as far as I'm concerned, much of the divide and rule we are seeing today, many of the radical agendas we've seen today, we are creating those activists, those warriors by our own taxpayer dollars. And we mm-hmm. need to get to the bottom of this. Thank you yep. so much for joining Don and me today. We will take a break now and be back with you in a while. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back to Greenwash. And now for a quick change. We've let Dawn off the hook now. And I'm back with our old suspect, Jill Booth. Welcome back, Jill. Good day. How are you doing? Hi, hi Jasper. I'm well, and it's good to be back. It's been a bit of a break. It has been. A few been. things happen in the, in the intervening weeks. So, yeah. Do but, I um, dare even ask what's kept you busy? Or should I not know? No, 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 no. <laughs> don't ask. But I, I well, yes. You know, apart from the fact that it's spring and everything grows. Um, but I, I'm noticing what has kept me busy lately is a lot of things are starting to happen locally um, with local councils, and that is really, really good. Very happy. Good, as long as you're optimistic. Right, now Jill and I left off last time at SDG 6, where we spoke about water and sanitation. Specifically, we just focused on New Zealand and Three Waters, the whole fiasco that was. Today, we've got a bit more time up our sleeve, and Jill and I are going to talk about SDG 7, so the United Nations Sustainable Goal Number 7, which is ensure access to clean, reliable, sustainable, modern energy for all by 2030. And if we can sneak this one in, SDG 8, which talks of sustainable economic growth and decent work for all. So SDG 7 and SDG 8. Let's begin with the first one. Clean energy, Jill. How clean are we? Well, you know, we're not, well, the new clean green energy is not clean and green um, really at all. But the other thing with the energy, like when they, with the New Zealand's report, they're saying energy poverty is a reality for at least a fifth of New Zealanders. And yet our energy prices, because 82% of our energy is renewable, um, our energy prices in New Zealand weren't too bad. But yes. now that BlackRock's going to get involved in things, I can imagine the price is only going to go one way and it's not going to be down. Not going to be down. And incidentally, I should have mentioned this in the beginning, listeners, Jill and I have gone back to 
the old favorite, the NZ People's Report. So if you just Google the People's Report SDG, that's the first result that comes out. And yeah. this is made by an NGO on how well New Zealand is uh, ticking off the United Nations SDGs. So clean energy, we've got global players now in there. We've got BlackRock that set up a $2 billion fund for a just transition to green energy for New Zealand. And this is one term that comes straight, straight out of the globalist playbooks of the World Economic Forum in the United Nations, just transition. And yep. it's diabolical, isn't it? It could mean many things, Dil, this phrase. Well, it, it does. And you, do, you know, is it is it just transition as in just do it or is it just as in Justice. justified? And um, and the first time I stumbled across this particular one was at a Delphi-style tech meet, technique meeting, I think it was in Gore. Um, and the words just, trans, just, just transition came up. So I had a look at it. And it goes straight back to the World Economic Forum. That's yeah. you know it doesn't it doesn't even shortcut through our government. It just goes straight back to the World Economic Forum. So this is um, where this is coming from. Just a wee note with the People's Report. This was done in two thousand and seventeen, which was two years before we officially signed up to to putting the SDGs into our government. So this has been going along in the background for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. So and we've got two areas of New Zealand, specifically Taranaki and Southland, where I am, which just specially focused on this just transition. Now, Southland, of course, they talk about a post Tivai, you know, the aluminium smelter plant. What is Southland's economic economic future going to look like once that folds? It's almost decided that that's going to fold. And the other area is Taranaki. And so I, I decided, let's look at Taranaki. So there's quite a few NGOs there. We've got Climate Justice Taranaki working there. It makes references to other organizations like Climate Justice Aotearoa, Climate Shifts, 350 Aotearoa, Degrowth New Zealand, and of course, how could you forget Greenpeace, the one that is a strategic partner with the United Nations, Greenpeace Aotearoa. Now, uh, 2021, Venture Taranaki, which is a council-controlled organization owned by the New Plymouth District Council, but runs as a charitable trust. It had a presentation done about what is a just transition. They had a Dutch scientist speaking up on this. But, I mean, his slides were long, and you can see those on the taranaki.co.nz page on what is a just transition. But... He got pretty specific about at around slide 87, if I'm really precise. And that's when the language came out. It said Taranaki 2050 roadmap. I just transitioned to a low emissions future. Get children involved. Engage those actors who could spread the vision and approach like a virus. Try to depoliticize the 2030 roadmap and make it society and business driven. So often, Jill, people keep looking at politicians as if politicians have a say in, whereas it's all now happening through the private sector. It is. Yeah, it's happening through your private sector and it's happening um, in, in your local 
government sector, this whole getting children involved and everything. But if you if you have a good look at that slide 87 and read the language in it, um, again, it's all fluffy and nothing actually really means anything, you know, sustainably growing our tourism industry. I mean, how do you, how do, you do that? Um, reconciliation of the past, integrated um, transition to low emissions. So all of this touchy-feely um, language that they use, it, it works really well on children, but as an adult, when you start looking at the wording of it and you go, what does that actually mean? Mm. Mm. And a lot of it actually doesn't mean anything. No, but they, they talk about influencers. Uh, this particular presentation that I'm referring to is called What is a Just Transition? And it's on the website taranaki.co.nz because remember that was an oil-rich area where we stopped any sort of exploration and drilling. The presentation says frame the process the D, you know, the transition to a green energy process in terms of social and economic gain. Frame it in terms of innovation and inclusion. Frame it in terms of how many Maori people could be employed. And we've seen this sort of fluffy language, this sort of inclusiveness, inclusivity, diversity, and uh, virtue signaling in so many places. But yet, we are having councils map you know, areas of natural significance and all of that outstanding natural landscapes. And we have windmills going up everywhere in some of our most iconic places. We have uh, not learned anything from overseas where there has been collateral damage to these windmills, which are at the best of times not very reliable also. But there's a subsidy, be it direct subsidies over overseas or be it, you know, ETS credits in New Zealand, these are going ahead. And in many places, there are people, I know at least in Southland, there are people who've been trying to get a say in about the fact that they're not happy of these about these wind farms going in on iconic landscapes around the Catlins and the slope down one that's underway. But what the government has done is it's put these under the COVID, uh, what do they call it? COVID revival. They call them the shovel-ready projects. And they have done away with consultation because these are shovel-ready. You don't even need to consult on them. So there it goes. The scariest thing about those, that we, you know, when you look at the wind farms that um, and where they've been projected to go in Southland. So Southland's an oil-rich any area as well as what Taranaki is, um, although we don't drill ours. But when you look at what's happening with the wind farms across the world, there's a massive one called Orsted, which I think is a Swedish one. They're abandoning their wind farms all over the world. The huge one that's going off the New Jersey coast in America, the British Channel one, because there simply is not the money in it. Um, so we're we're already following something that is already beginning to fail, um, which really makes financially it makes no sense at all. Jill, but that doesn't sound to you just like the COVID vaccination plan. We <laughs> saw how it was failing in other countries. We were six to nine yes. months behind the Northern Hemisphere, and yet the vaccines are failing miserably. Israel showed it. 30, a study of 30,000 people showed it, that they were doing nothing at all to stop transmission. And yet they were pushed on two shots for summer, make it three, get a booster if you want a life, two classes of citizen. It's almost like we know it is going to fail. But, you yeah. know, the collateral damage is what we need. The 
people on their knees, businesses hitting the wall and all of that. And, you know, if if you want green energy, if you want to live, I don't know, if you want to go back to energy shortages and so on, fill your boots. But do have a look. And I'm going to try and play this clip from the UK where an influencer, because, uh, you know, UK Northern Hemisphere heading into a winter, is trying to tell people how low-cost heaters can work and a DIY heater at that. Now, let me see if I can get this to play while we are chatting here. But it's it's amazing what we've come to, what clean energy actually looks like. And here goes. I'm going to show you guys how to make this terracotta pot heater, which is perfect for like a bedroom or a small space in the winter to stay warm without having to use any electricity or run the heat and heat your whole house all night. We all know that the price of gas is going up this year, so this is a great alternative to just burning up that oil and having a little bit more control over what rooms you're heating. So to start, we just use a basic cookie sheet. You really could use the bottom of the pan if you wanted. Um, it doesn't matter, but something flat and round like this. And then on top of that, I have two little candles from the dollar store. And these are not the tea light. They're the ones that are about like maybe four or five inches tall. Um, this is the second full night I've burned this. So this is after two complete nights, um, two candles and then two bricks. And the bricks are just there to build up a little bit of space so that the air can get underneath to then put this terracotta pot on top of. The first terracotta pot that you put on is going to be smaller than the second one. And you want to plug that hole up with some tin foil or something so that the heat isn't escaping. And the idea behind that is the heat will actually heat up that terracotta pot. And then that way there's room to put the next one on top of it and the heat will vent around it. So I adjusted that middle one so that there's room for this top one to sit on top of the bricks over it. And I placed that on there. Don't mind the dirt. I do reuse these for my actual plants in the summertime. And you want to make sure it's lined up. Like this is a little crooked for me. I can see the lights. It's not directly over. So I'm going to readjust this and push this little one into the middle just slightly more so that everything is centered. And then when you peek down in that top hole, you should really see that tinfoil through the middle. And the heat is going to just blast straight out that hole, you guys. Happy heating. Big wow. cold day in hell before I use a terracotta pot as a heater. <laughs> <laughs> Clean energy there. Equitable, <clears throat> inclusive, low-cost transition. I mean, I can tell you my grandma did better than that. I'm pretty sure even before the pre-electricity days, she had hot water bottles and so on. We, but that's India we are talking about. This We won't uh, say anything about those tea light candles coming from China. <laughs> <laughs> on, a, on a diesel spewing, uh, no, no, spewing neither on. will we say anything no. about what's happening in Mongolia or to the you know child miners in Congo where the insatiable yeah. demand for lithium ultimately pays dividends what's happening to the communities the environmental costs there and unless we stop the subsidies that taxpayers are paying to all of these you know virtue signaling companies while rest of us are left without basic infrastructure like education, healthcare, and so on. This ain't going to stop because these people have found a good thing going. That's true, you know, and and going back to, to just transition, you know, the just transition is really a, a just transfer, and it's a transfer of our wealth to, to these massive companies. So it's having a bit of a look at what's going on in China. So China has... Um, it has excavated more rare earth minerals than any other country in the world um, at the moment. This is to bring us our, our, our energy transition. Um, it is also buying up all the EV battery making um, areas, you know, for, 
you know, to, to come off fossil fuels and all go into electric cars. Um, China also has the, the <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the dibs on, don't you hate that when you're trying to speak? <laughs> um, China also has the dibs on solar panels. So we have this transition into these great big windmills that are made in China um, to all our solar panels that are made in China to our EV batteries and our cars that are made in China. And in 15 years' time, when China has a complete monopoly on all of that green energy stuff, how much is it going to cost? Because when you've got no competition, you can charge what you like. Um, you know, 15, and, years, and 15 years is still Fajal. I am not living. Uh, you know, I hope you could visualize what that uh, influencer in UK was trying to show. But what she was essentially doing was putting a plate, two tea lights, two concrete, uh, I think two bricks on either side of those and covering it with two terracotta heaters. And, you know, even tin foil that comes in handy sometimes. But isn't it nice? She, she probably has a circular economy and a low footprint because she's going to reuse those terracotta pots in the summer for her plants. How wonderful. I could just see my children <laughs> just going to town if I started that. In fact, Jill, before that yeah. happens, I would rather go and ransack every single op shop for every musty old fur coat that I can buy and survive like that rather than have that sort of a... Sorry, Jess, I have been there before you. I have got them all. <laughs> oh, God. And what would Peter say, Jill? That influencer probably lives at home with your parents and they, and they pay the bill. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that, there you have it. That is, that is SDG 7. That's SDG yeah. 7. Clean energy for you. And if there's one phrase you need to take out of that and look it up, it is just transitions. That's transition. Yeah. So I think we've chewed the fat enough on this one, Jill. Let's uh, go. Sorry to... about the cough. That's all right. Have you had a big night? No, no, no. I haven't had any night. <laughs> <laughs> SDG eight now, and we've, you know. SDG 8 ballpark, it, it is talking about workplaces and decent work yeah. and decent economic growth, virtue signaling again. I keep using that word very often, uh, but I make no apologies for that. That is what all of this is. It's um, This all comes through in the just transition too. Um, the language is, is the same in here. So when you want to launch into it go for it <laughs> so SDG 8 in the people's report says Aotearoa of course it has to be Aotearoa New Zealand is a wealthy country by global standards but our wealth is not evenly fairly distributed we are a low wage economy full employment remains elusive especially for Maori Pacific people and young workers uh, the unemployment for Maori and Pacific people, they say, is nearly twice that as for other New Zealanders. Women, they say there's a big pay gap. Women are getting 9.2% lesser wages than men for the same job of work, but even versus uh, Asian women get 23% less. That's me, Jill. 28% lower for Maori women, 32% lower than the average for Pacific women. And that is where it is. We need to ensure the wealth is equally fairly distributed via work. Smells a bit like communism to me, if I'm being honest, Jill. Well, it smells it smells like deceit. It really does. Um, 
and a lot of many many women get paid the same as men but they spend fewer hours at work and sometimes that's just part of being a woman and how we're put together and how we're made um and other parts of that is because we tend to well you know when I was a woman we used to be the ones that had children <laughs> um, and things are changing now um but you know, women women tend to be in the workforce for fewer hours, and it's not that they get paid less um, yep. than a lot of men. And then a lot of men, you know, when you start getting out the top echelons of, of work and you see O positions, they simply work harder um, yep. and are often more qualified because they they have been able to. And I don't see that as being um, unfair or an unequal distribution. Um, of work so so that whole thing about women always being paid less than men is actually not quite true it's just the way it's been they don't been talk together. about trade-offs if I have chosen oh. to take a job with lesser hours of work I have chosen to jump in and out of the workforce as in when my kids were born or when my dad was unwell and I needed to have a year uninterrupted all of that no one talks about that if my husband earns more, it's not just because he does a more demanding job, but it's also because he has st stuck to his role of being the breadwinner throughout. He he couldn't, he didn't have the, you know, what do I say? Just the liberty that I did knowing that I would be providing. He didn't have that poor man and he had to stick to it. Yeah. And I was an at-home mum, you know, so so I, I dropped out of the workforce completely um, it wasn't because I was incapable of earning as much as a man. It's just that I I chose to be, you know, to be a mum and, and had a supportive husband. We were talking in SDG 7, we are talking about the just transitions and this comes back into this um, this workforce thing. With It's got, they're encouraging signs of government support for a just transition an approach developed by trade unions to enable an ambitious transformation to a net zero carbon economy that delivers good jobs and enables working people to maintain their living standards and well-being. A trust, a just transition requires coordinated planning, active support for retraining, investment to create new jobs, especially in clean energy and transport infrastructure, and other pol policies to um, equitably share both the opportunities and the costs of transitions. What the hell does that mean, Jasper? It's, it's a word salad. <laughs> We're not paying any more attention to it. But we have, you know, stuff like menopause leave. Now, I saw this article <laughs> on One News when they said New Zealand has not yet put a figure on it, but Australia estimates that menopause has a significant impact on the economy with 17 billion lost in earnings. Now, how do you get to that? What is what is a good job? Now, because Farming has been deemed not low carbon, so the job that I do is not a good job. So I should possibly hang my head in shame about what feeds me and my children and puts a roof over our head. But somehow I don't. They also talk, I mean, we have all birds, the New Zealand Merino Wool Shoe Company that provides uh, leave for, you know, transition transitioning to another gender. It provides leave and pay for people who are in certain states of uh, its U.S. businesses to move, go to other states to get an abortion. Is that a good job? Rainbow ticks and those sort of companies. At one time, you used to go to work just to work. And that was it. Anything else was 
after work but we these they decided to take our whole self to work but let's let's go even further this article this people's report also talks about the fact that we need to look at modern slavery in new zealand because it's a reality of life and we've taken that so literally that auckland university now has a research research center on modern slavery can you believe that a research center on modern slavery are they using the apple ipods <laughs> driving there in their electric car <laughs> oh gosh trust you to go straight to that but these these are the companies uh, i mean these are the woke academics who are now talking about the fact that new zealand because of the huge amount of migration well we could actually even just stop migration but let's leave that for now uh, because of its huge amount of migration it's seeing a lot of migrant exploitation their research paper says we need to look at you know immigration status of employees look at what sort of uh, you know pay packets they get and whether they are availing all the benefits being available to them and how much kiwi employers are exploiting migrant workers so i said all right i am going to go and have a look at the ministry of business innovation and employment page because they produce what they call what they term as a employers visa stand down report and these stand down periods is for the employers where there has been some infringement of the employments relations act 2000 and i went through the 1st of november list that they have printed and i'm going to reel off some of the names because somehow they just reel off easily off my tongue they sound really really familiar amardeep singh employer name PMB Communications, Liang Tang, Rap Hospitality, Samra Holdings, Samra Enterprises, Samra Brothers, Akal Holdings, Sukhdev Singh, Mihul Patel, Abhi Patel, Nikhil Himalaya Point, Himalayan Liquor. I could go on and on. Going through these pages, and there's about twelve pages. Nine pages of the names are Indian names. So I would tell these work professors in the Auckland University's research center on modern slavery that actually your problem is that established migrants are exploiting new migrants. There don't seem to be a lot of Kiwis actually, you know, Kiwi Kiwis actually exploiting this. So maybe we could just shut shop there, aye, and we don't need to anything. So we could actually just shut the shop. We are talking of. migrant exploitation but that's being done by other migrants so why what are we talking about then well you know slavery in new zealand isn't a, isn't a big thing um but again to under this under the sdg 8 and about employment they've got volunteerism and volunteerism will be a new form of slavery because remember when all of this was done we didn't have ai so how many people's jobs are going to be eventually replaced by ai and then what are they going to do so at the moment in china they're sending millions of their young people back out into the country to volunteer and the older ones are really worried that this is actually a return to to um malism and that's how communism worked was you know if you didn't volunteer you you got nothing from your state and isn't that interesting that in the people's report right after they talk about 
this particular SDG, SDG 8, fair work and all of that, the very next page, page 64, is a conversation with Dr. Katie Bruce, the chief executive of Volunteering New Zealand. And she says that the UN report in June 2015 about integrating volunteering in the next, de next decade states volunteerism can significantly contribute to ensure no one will be left behind in the SDG framework. New Zealand, for its size, and I was trying to look at figures, depending on which, uh, you know, websites you look at, I looked at community.net.nz, community net Aotearoa. It says in 2018, New Zealand had 115,770 non-governmental organizations. The vast majority of these rely heavily on unpaid volunteer labor. For the size of its population, says Community Net Aotearoa, New Zealand has one of the largest non-profit sectors in the world, representing $18.11 billion annually. And it's this running this takes 159 million hours and year of voluntary work. It says it cites the source statistics New Zealand nonprofit institution satellite accounts. So for a country the size Jill, well over a hundred thousand NGOs and one hundred and fifty-nine million hours of volunteer work every year. Well, again, in the People's Report, you know, it's got the, the fourth most generous country in the world in terms of time spent volunteering, but the number of, number of hours is down 42%, which is nearly 50%. But there was, I remember reading it from somebody who was famous who said something once, and they were saying that the, the more the government steps in to do things, the more people actually step back because yep. the government's already doing it, so we don't tend to volunteer or, or give so much. So, um, you know, and so there's, they're looking at, at picking up the volunteer roles. Um, in this report, they're a bit upset that our society is still structured along um, gender lines, um, but that's just going to be, you know, women do women's jobs with volunteering and, and blokes do blokes' jobs with volunteering and that's that's the way it works. And that's, so, that's where we are. I mean, we are trying to put everyone in the same size boxes, yes. same, put everyone, make everyone identical, make every, you know, there needs to be absolutely not an iota of difference and yet they talk about inclusive and being accepting of differences and all of this when it comes to certain certain groups and otherwise not it is it is time to realize that whether we like it or not we are one of the countries in the world that is absolutely at the forefront of pushing the sdg agendas and unless you want a terracotta heater jill i think we'd better be, be aware i've got the fair coats jasper <laughs> yes, so do I. At least one. At least one. Peter, be damned. You know, I'm already farming, so let's add one more cardinal <laughs> sin to my uh, upper arms. Mm -hmm. So, right, with that, we'll come to the end of this week's uh, reality check for the Greenwash team. And it's good to have Jill back. Hopefully, for the re rest of the year, we shall have her on as a regular feature and whip through the remaining 10 SDGs, nine now, now that we've done SDG eight. So, see you again next time. Goodbye. Okay. And have a good Monday. Bye. 
Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.